common and 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 and, and approached me for it, and I was interested in because live. of the um because of the complex nature of the of the land issues uh, um, that 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 were involved, and one of the things we found, for example, was that the um, the underlying there was a long-standing uh, dispute regarding the ownership and, and of the of the Malheur refuge in East, in eastern Oregon, and it was so long-standing that I think I think it's probably fair to say that most m- most people knew it without knowing why, if, if that makes sense. And so it was kind of passed down from from father and and you know from fathers to sons and daughters to their sons and daughters to you know to their sons and daughters where where ever, everyone forgot kind of where it came from but um but but knew it you know but that didn't mean that they didn't know that it was it, it was an issue and so um one of the things that we uncovered in in going into the trial was really the basis of it and and again we we had another a court that wanted wanted uh, um to us to stay away from it but they couldn't help it you know it, it, because it was the, it was it was why Mr. Bundy um led the protest that he did so eventually it came into evidence and i think it ended up being the you know the, the legitimacy the legitimacy of that issue ended up being the uh, the foothold that i think the the jury um um uh, you know you know allowed the the jury to find to find these defendants not not guilty. Well, can you uh, can you elaborate a little bit about that? Not to go into you know huge detail, but a little bit about you know what is the uh, what what is the sticking point about that particular bit of land? Because out out west here, you know, Oregon is something like seventy something percent. Uh, you know, the federal government claims ownership of the land. Nevada is something like ninety percent, and you know, so out here. It's a big issue yeah. with a lot of people. Uh, yeah. So what is the uh, what what is the uh, you know quickly the history about how they came about claiming they own that land? Yeah, and and I will say I will say this: it, it, the Malheur Refuge in Oregon, where this protest took place, is unique in some respects, and it's not unique in other respects. It's unique in the sense that. It was a uh, part of it was um, a part of it was granted by uh, um, you know was was basically was held back when Oregon was granted statehood and 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 we like to say that's the part of the refuge that we don't that we didn't have any dispute with but the rest of the because and that concerned just the if you're familiar with the lake in the local area there there's the there's the lake. And that was just around the lake. But then what's happened over time is it's just expanded to include all this rangeland. And through the 30s and the 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, there was a there was a combined use where, you know, the federal government in particular, they didn't they tried not to, um, you know, you know, they tried to balance all of the uses. Well, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and and even today. That's become the um, uh, that's become the the the, the, the avenue of pursuing a certain environmental uh, p- policy, such that in you know in in the seventies and eighties uh, the the you know the in, the history that I've 
that, that I that I heard was they, uh, they 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 flooded out all the ranchers and then came and bought out their their lands pennies on the dollar, and then from that point on just sort of you know imposed um, a certain a certain amount a certain uh, a, a certain viewpoint and no longer were trying to balance any more of of the land use but they were going for one land use in 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 particular and that was the land use that was consistent with the uh, with what we what we probably know today is the environmental um uh, movement but if i can take you back just a little bit so this land had been homesteaded in the late 1800s and and primarily by these large um by these large cattle companies. And then in the 1920s and 1930s, these companies failed, just like a lot of companies failed in, in, in the U.S. And, um, and so you need, and so Congress, but basically they, what they were trying to do is they were trying to homestead it again. But of course, you know, having homesteaded it once, well, what'd they do? Well, they bought it up from these, they, they authorized Congress with the money to buy it from these uh, defunct cattle companies and and then um and then they had funds that were allocated toward the new deal toward the ccc toward the other other um uh, um, um public works uh, um uh, um the uh, programs of the time and those public works then invested in it but in the 1940s the legislative branch of the federal government ordered the um, executive branch to to you know to sell it and and to get out of it and and in fact the legislative branch waived the uh, all all federal jurisdiction over this well this is the this is the long standing dispute is that the um the federal executive branch decided it didn't want to it didn't want to comply with with what the legislative branch branch said and over time you know, there's you know it, there's this frustration, even even frustration um, at the time of the occupation. A few days into the occupation, one of the members of of the of the congressional delegation from Oregon took the the the, the floor of the house to uh, you know you know to share some of these longstanding frustrations with the executive branch is out of control. The executive branch no longer complies. With what with what the legislative branch tells it uh, to to do, and it goes all the way back to the nineteen nineteen forties. In, uh, in this Frank, sense. I have one question, mm-hmm. and that would be: Mr. Mumford was tasered. So why don't you just tell us why you were tasered? Yeah, and then we can go to the song at twenty five after, because it'll probably take you about five minutes to go into that whole issue. Sure. Sure, I can tell you that. So, so this is at the very end of the case, where um, the jury comes back and the verdict is read and, and not guilty. And as you can imagine, um, that's a, that's a very that's a very satisfying um, uh, feeling for a, a, a lawyer to hear that uh, that that verdict that's read and and uh, and and we're very pleased. Probably, to get it. probably uh, not as probably not as satisfying as for the defendants. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, it's 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 uh, it's it, it was a hard-fought battle, and 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 so it was rewarding for I think both sure. the defendant and and for myself. Hey, I feel um, but, I feel rewarded just just knowing about it. <laughs> thank you. Um, but um, 
so at the end was, so there's, uh, first of all, just a little background. There's this dual prosecution that's going on that we challenged during the, the, during the, the life of the case, where they have charges that, that were brought in Nevada that overlap with the charges that were brought in Oregon. And the one, the, the, both cases overlap. And along the way, we had, we had um, you know, challenged this and the federal government had, and the U.S. Attorney's Office had, 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 had conceded that they had not, they, they had not complied with the, their procedures for, for bringing a dual prosecution. And so at the time I had, uh, this is back in June, kind of the June, July time period, I had, I had challenged it and I had asked the court to modify the Nevada, um, uh, um, the, the Nevada um, uh, prosecution and how he was being held in, 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 in custody. And the court in Oregon said he, it didn't have power to modify the, um, the Nevada uh, detention Order. So fast, fast forward. Now, at the end of a case, if you're found not guilty, you're 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 free to go, and that's how the law works here. Now, and that's what the judge said. She, she said to me and 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 Mr. Bundy, Mr. Bundy, you're free to go as far as I'm concerned. But the U.S. Marshals who are here in the courtroom, they may have something to say about it. And so I said, well, you know, that, first of all, that's a little bit awkward. So I tried to raise this issue and just to say, well, okay, um, if they have something to say about it, show me your authority, show me your papers, show me your order that allows you to take Mr. Bunny into custody, because otherwise he's walking out a, a free man. And you know where he is. Everyone knows where he is. He's going home. And you know where to find him. And if you have an, if you have an issue down the road and you want to come and get him and compel his attendance in Nevada, you know, you know where to find him and I'll help you. But otherwise, he's free to go. And it was at that point that where where, where they, they, these several U.S. Marshals started to crowd a, a, around me at the time, and, and and you know I was still arguing arguing my point, arguing the point that Mr. Bundy should be free to go. When instead of arguing back or presenting any papers, they just take a hold of me, and they um, and they, they grab a hold of me. And in courtroom, in the courtroom, as I'm standing there, and then they start saying things like, oh, "You're resisting. Stop resisting." I'm like, "I'm not. I'm not. I'm not resisting." But this isn't right. And, but but sure enough, they they take me, they grab me, they rip my shirt, they rip my suit, and then they put me to the ground, and um, and they kind of have my legs up in a hog tie uh, position. And the next thing I know is is they start talking about getting the taser out, and I'm like. And I, I don't remember what I said or not because things are going through my head and I'm not sure if they're coming out. But I, I remember saying something like, no taser, <laughs> no, no taser. And then, of course, you, you get hit with the taser and, and I stand up at the end and I, I look and the, by that point, the courtroom has been cleared. And the, but the judge is still sitting there. And I remember just an eerie feeling of like, you, you just watched that? That whole thing. So anyway, that's uh, that's that's a little bit of what of, of what happened. I can fill in some additional de- de- detail now, after did, the break. Did, did they have any paperwork at all or anything? I mean, well, you know, you, you know. So they took me into custody that night, but my office kept pursuing them, and they didn't. They didn't. They never had and never presented to us any paperwork or any order that 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 gave them the authority to take Mr. Bunny into custody. Are you uh, thinking about pursuing any charges against uh, the marshal's uh, service or maybe the judge for sitting there and allowing this in her courtroom? 
Well, I'm, I'm first, I, you know, I got, I ended up getting cited with uh, two, um, two, received two, two federal citations for violations. Uh, ironically enough, it was, uh, for, for, uh, for impeding, impeding a federal officer, which was the very charges that my clients were, uh, were, were acquitted of. <laughs> so, so, Wait a minute, so, are you saying for uh, violations or citations or citations? Citations. Yeah. So that's really not even a crime, right? It's just like a traffic ticket. Yeah. So I got, I got, uh, yeah, I got two citations that are scheduled to be heard by the um, the 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 federal court has a has a, a calendar where these things come up, but yeah. They're they're basically the, uh, the 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 law that is cited that I violated purportedly violated was the uh, from the code of federal regulations. So again, this is a federal agency wrote something that 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 they now say that I I I violated. It doesn't have a it doesn't have an amount, or I'm not sure what the fine is or what the what well, what the categorization of it is maybe, either. maybe I'm wrong, but I thought federal regulations only applied to the agencies that wrote them, and they only apply to people in that agency. Mm-hmm. I mean, am yeah, I wrong? I, uh, <laughs> I'm still getting, I'm still trying to, to get to the bottom of it, uh, quite frankly. I've been in touch with the court. Because I'm scheduled right now, I'm scheduled to appear at the first of the year, and uh, and in in advance of that, I've asked the court, hey, I want the videos, and I want the um, I want the any email correspondence, and any 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 anything that would show me what actually happened there, because uh, because I I uh, I'm 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 pretty confident that 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 whatever I did, it didn't it wasn't a a crime, and it wasn't something I should be penalized for. So, and well, Mr. And in Mumford, fact, okay, yes. go on. No, keep going. Yeah, I was going to say, and in fact, I've asked the court to open an investigation to whether the marshal service actually should be held in contempt of court because um, I understand. And now they were tasing me at this time, but I understand that there was the judge ordered, uh, issued an, a stand down order, basically told the marshals, hey, stand down, don't, don't do this. And, and yet they kept going and they, they put, they put me down. And so I, I've, I've told people, well, if I, if I am told to take an action in court and yet I still do it, I'm, I'm, I'm at risk of being held in contempt. And so I think I think the uh, the U.S. Marshals ought to be ought to be in 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 investigated well, for. And, and for if, con- I, if I walk in anywhere and uh, handcuff somebody and drag them off and throw them in a cage, I'm going to be charged with kidnapping unless I got my paperwork together, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 what uh, you would be charged with kidnapping or. Or worse, I imagine. Yeah, unless you were a federal protected service contractee to the U.S. Marshal Service, well, and in fact, we don't even know those were federal marshals that yeah. grabbed you unless they had a badge on. So with that, yeah, we got to go very to the interesting music. Point. And uh, yes, we're going to see that on the video because I actually witnessed something very much like it. And but I want to go to the music and I'm dedicating this to the Bundy family. Thank you.
studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific. You just defended yourself with a gun. The police are called and you're potentially involved in a homicide, but it was self-defense. At this point, you are not in your right mind. No one ever is when they are in fear for their life and defend themselves. Anything you say can and will be used in a court of law, both civilly and criminally. Fortunately, you have selfdefensefund.com. We are the National Association for Legal Gun Defense, and we protect our members nationally in all 50 states, up to $1 million per incident per member. Let us do the talking for you and visit selfdefensefund.com. Any weapon, any state, any time. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Anyhow, it's still Monday, November 7th, 2016. It's about 9.40 now, and it is Monday night, second hour. I've got Dean Lauren from New York City live with us, and we also have Marcus Mumford, who was or is the attorney for Almond Bundy. Welcome back, both of you. Well, thank you. I, I have just one question, and I've been trying to keep these questions to a minimum, uh, and that is there has to be some type of monetary value of great worth that would drive some type of federal protection service, and I can't even say the U.S. Marshal Service because you didn't see any badges because, you know, you would have said that right up front, but I'm sure the videos will show it. But somebody grabbed you in the middle of a court, tasered you, so there's got to be some type of, and I hope it's not uranium, going down in Nevada. What is driving this, Marcus Mumford? What do you think? Well, it, it's, you know, this goes to, I think that the, the question goes to what, why, why, why did they take such an interest in, 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 in Ammon Bundy in the first place? In other words, and, and, and this goes into, for example, or, ordinarily uh, a defendant waiting trial is presumed innocent and in deference to their rights is released, you know, subject to bail or subject to other restrictions, but, you know, will remain free. But Mr. Bundy has been incarcerated ever since he was arrested on January 26th. So, um, and and we challenged those 
those findings. And each time we challenged them, we said, what is it about, well, what is it about Mr. Bundy that, that is such a danger to his, to the, the community or otherwise? And they couldn't, you know, cause he's not, he doesn't have a, a record. He doesn't have a, you know, his only, his, his only history here is a history of political protests, both on, on behalf of himself and his, 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 his father's, uh, his father. And there are the issues that, that, uh, that were faced when the, uh, the 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 BLM came and confronted them in in Bunkerville, N- Nevada, back in uh, April 2014, and also in Oregon, and 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 so you know we faced that question and, and we asked it. We asked it. What what is it about Mr. Bundy that just that just uh, you know makes 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 the federal government, especially the executive branch, go nuts here here? And uh, as near as we can tell, I think it's. It's probably fair to say there are two things. Uh, uh, first of all, um, uh, Mr. Bundy has powerful enemies, and in particular, uh, a, a certain um, um, senator from Nevada, who's the, the who was the majority leader, now the minority leader, and is soon to be out of office, as I understand it. Uh, but Harry. Reed has, is the one that labeled these individuals domestic t- terrorists, and as near as I can tell, as near as I can tell, he did so only only because he doesn't um, like them, and and he I you know there's talk that you know that some somehow you know some friends of his or or others have an interest in the land. Around um, um, their ranch in in, in in Bunkerville, but you know that's something that I haven't. Uh, I'm, I'm you know there are other people that are much more knowledgeable of that. Uh, but but it's it's when 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 Harry Reid goes on you know goes on the news and calls you domestic terrorists, then then um, you know the it's it's kind of assumed that the, uh, uh, the, the, the his friends in in government will will follow suit. But there's another aspect of it too. And that is, um, um, and, and in fact, the Mr. Um, Buddy took the stand and and ex- explained this at the recent trial. And that's he views he very much views the Second Amendment and the the, the liberties that it, it 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 represents as protecting and ensuring, if you will, the the all of the rights um, secured by the others by the other amendments in the, the Bill of Rights. And, and as he says, the, you know, the Second Amendment guarantees the, 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 you know, all of, of the others. The, the rights in the Second Amendment guarantees all of the, of the, the rights in the others. And, and that's very, and, and, and he, and so, and so when he was, uh, when he was setting up the protest, you know, he, 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 he encouraged people to bring their, 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 their firearms to the, uh, the, the Malheur refuge. Now, in doing so, uh, um, once as the, the evidence that was, pre- that was presented in this case was once they got, once, once anyone got there, you know, they, they made sure that they were handled appropriately and they made sure that, they, you know, it's the best they could. They made sure that they were never, you know, Pointed at anyone, they were never, and 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 you hear the the messaging that was coming out of the Malheur uh, refuge from the protesters at the time was very much, hey, we we're, we 
we do not intend to threaten anyone with with these firearms. They are simply, but 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 we we don't have an obligation to become martyrs either. And so this is not going to be the next Ruby Ridge. This is not going to be the next um, Waco. And and um, and 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 if we if we find ourselves if we find ourselves being you know the, where the federal government is coming in on them, coming in on us and abusing our rights, then we intend to defend ourselves. But uh, but you know as you can imagine that that is a that is a thought that people are coming to grips with. Here these you know no one no one really knows what to do with, especially in the in the federal government, and it kind of goes back to I trace that line of thinking and especially the the the, the a primacy of of the issue that we're dealing with here today to the um, to the 2008 um, Supreme Court decision. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote it in in the D.C. v. Heller, and that's I think it. In fact, I think it came up at the last uh, presidential debate as well, where where that where at that time Scalia wrote that that the purpose of the Second Amendment. And and that that you you recall that decision was significant because it it found a personal it found that the rights to uh, uh, bear arms was a personal and individual right, but but more significantly than that for our purposes is is it's the individual right that derives from the right of the 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 the, the right of the citizens to form citizens militias, and and citizens militia. As as uh, Scalia wrote, the Second Amendment was not in, intended to lay down a novel principle, but r- rather codified a right inherited from our English ancestors to ensure the existence of a citizen's militia as a safeguard against uh, t- tyranny and to secure the people the ability to oppose themselves in military force against the usurpations of, of, of government. Now, I think I think if if everyone is if everyone is honest, they view Mr. Bundy as a threat because he 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 he, he believes well, what what Justice Scalia wrote there. I'll just add this one thing before Frank asks this question. I would say to Ruby Ridge, Waco. And then I would add Pine Ridge, Leonard Peltier, with the uranium contract signed the day before the gunfight. Frank, I know you've got a question. I actually have a couple of questions. And, and one is, uh, going back to what you, you were just talking about, is aren't there specific guidelines with bail, like uh, a flight risk or a danger to the community, uh, is there anything else? Yeah. I mean, because I I was listening carefully and I didn't hear any either one. Yeah, and and that's what if you're not a danger to the community and you're not a flight risk, uh, the Bell Reform Act of 1968 says that you're supposed to be be to uh, be released pending 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 trial now what what they said is this they admitted they everyone acknowledged and admitted that mr bundy was not a flight risk and so the issue came down to well is he a danger to the a, a, a community and there we went through all of the circumstances 
of the of of the crimes that he was accused of, and and we were able to point out, hey, he was not a violent man. He he he, he presented no 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 no. No, no threats, no violence. He, he. I think he had guns in his truck at, at any given time, but he, he didn't. He, he never, he never was seen carrying them around at all. And so, but what the government said was this: what the government said is, yes, but he disobeys orders. And to which we said, where? Pr- prove it. Where's your order that he disobeyed? And 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 when it came down to it, there was no order that he disobeyed but they got a, a, away with they got away with this false um, assertion that mr. Bundy has problems with authority and therefore he um, and therefore he presents a danger to the the, 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 the community and we, where we got where and whenever we got where we demanded that they be specific in that, they were not. They were not. It was, and and what the distinction that, that we made was, you know, he has problems with the federal government not respecting the limits of its authority, but it can't be. It can't be that that's a, that that's that that's illegal. Number one, or it can't be that that's a that presents a danger to just say to the federal government, hey, you, you need to live within the limits of your power. But but that was uh, that was a fight and. And we appealed that to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit almost scandalously um, ignored it, and and they let him they let him remain in custody, even though um, even though he does not present a, a danger, and uh, he's still in custody now as he waits uh, he, he waits uh, uh, the trial in in the Nevada case. Okay, so before all that was uh, well and fine, and uh, they can make up stories and lie and all that, and. But okay, now they've been found innocent. So now, yeah. what's the story? What's the deal now? I mean, uh, why is he still in jail now? Why hasn't he been allowed bail now? Seeing as how he's been found innocent one time already. Yeah. So and the charges, um, everything they've said was basically a lie, untrue, not real, unaccepted. Uh, nobody bought it. And uh, he's innocent. So how do they? Yeah. How, how does that fly now? That oh, you know, can you revisit the bail thing? Because uh, from what I understand, he's scheduled to sit in jail for until uh, the next year. Yeah, um, and and that is I understand. In speaking with his his, his lawyers in in Nevada, that they intend to uh, they very much intend to 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 uh, raise this issue with the court there and to challenge it. Um, it, the the word that I get is that the court in Nevada is uh, um, intends to uh, tends to take the same the same position as the court of Oregon did. So it'll just it'll just it'll just depend on whether or not the the appellate court is gonna is gonna allow it to to uh, to, to happen or not. Well, I think the real criminals here is the federal government, but. That's my opinion, but I have a serious question, and it and it's a little, it's not really that involved, but I guess I'm going to make it more complicated than I I need to because I want to make okay. I want to make it clear to the listeners really what I'm asking. Uh, 
when you're found not guilty, we all walk into court with the presumption that we are innocent until we are proven beyond a reasonable doubt to be guilty. And if we're not, basically a not guilty verdict is a preservation of our innocence. Is that is that a fair? Is that fair? Yes. Is that right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. there is the matter of Mr. Finnicum, who is dead now, and. Um, Apparent, I, I would presume that he would have been charged with the same things that everyone who was acquitted was charged with. They are innocent. They were found innocent of anything. Now, Mr. Finnegan is dead. So what that says to me is the officials murdered an innocent man. Is there anything in the works to hold any of those people responsible? Um, I know that Mr. Finnicum's uh, family is currently uh, um, pursuing a, 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 a claim against the federal government for, um, for, for, for wrongful death. Um, and um, I know that from speaking with, from speaking with, um, with, with his widow. Um, but I got to say, one of the, one of the real, Honors in um, in 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 fighting this case is to uh, is to is to um, is is to have have seen what what Mr. Finnicum was uh, you know what seen what Mr. Finnicum accomplished there and I think I, I I was sharing with a friend of mine that I think I think there ought to be a a political science uh, course. That that, um, that 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 goes through and shows how 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 Lavoy Finnicum, this dust rancher from Arizona, northern Arizona, really brought brought uh, completely schooled and brought to its knees the the this federal propaganda, um, uh, um, uh, uh, you know. This post 9/11 federal propaganda machine, with with little more than an iPhone and a YouTube channel, and 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 he he was so effective at communicating his you know his 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 his, his communicating his thoughts, communicating his message, that ultimately they they determined that they needed to they do do more than just arrest him. And oh, this, said, is, this is making me crazy, but we only have four minutes left. So, Mr. Mumford, how can people keep in touch with your status or with the Bundys? Is, how do people reach out and keep in the information guideline now that Mr. Finnicum is no longer with us? Well, thank you. Um, my my, um, you, people can also always keep in touch with me at my uh, my website is mumfordpc.com and it's uh, in, and my email address is mrm at mumfordpc.com. That's Mary Robert Mary at mumfordpc.com um, and other information. I know that the that the Bundys have. You know, have their um, their Facebook page up and um, and 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 their 
blog spot, I think, is the, the Bundy Ranch uh, blog spot. And I'm not I'm not associated with that, but I know that that is that is one place that they have uh, have had um, uh, have been able to keep going. And of course, it's now it's I think it's mostly just the the the, the wives who are running things uh, these days because as Mr. Uh, it was an incredibly emotional um, moment during the recent trial when Mr. Bundy uh, took the stand and explained, hey, you know, my brothers and my father and my brothers, we're all in jail. You know, they've got us in, 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 in incarcerated. Um, and that's what happens when you uh, when you go up against them. But uh, I know that they can I, I know that they'd be happy to hear them and they uh, and, and, and people can keep in touch with 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 uh, with, with with them and, and follow and follow those sites as well. Wow. Well, it's uh, I'm glad to hear that, you know, they're pursuing something now. Uh, I guess the last question is uh, the district attorney up in that area. Why aren't they filing murder charges against who killed an innocent man, Mr. Finnicum? Yeah, you'll have to ask. You'll have to ask, ask, ask them. But I think, I think what we uncovered in this case was 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 several additional facts that that lend. I mean, that that really that 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 really show how that is the the question that should be asked. For example, why did they? Mr. Mr. Finnicum is seen that day telling the Oregon State Police, I'm going to meet with the sheriff. Follow me. And yet they and, they, and yet they execute a um, what's called a high risk, uh, a high risk felony uh, tra- traffic stop. Why is it high risk? Because it's a it's it's a it's a it's around a blind corner and it's considered deadly force. Um, the we. We uncovered facts that, that that showed that it was that that the gun that was allegedly found on Mr. Finnicum wasn't found for nine hours. So presumably, there were there were people who tended to his care for the first nine hours that never found a gun. Um, we uncovered uh, uh, other um, facts that showed um, that. That where where they said the federal government told the state police they had an indictment when in fact they didn't, and and so it, it and so it became well they they had to kind of fill in the facts after the facts so they had no authority to arrest anyone like they said they did. Um, there are a number of, of facts like that. There are a number of facts that that, that suggest that this should uh, that, that your listeners should follow this case. It, it is it, it is an interesting case for the the the, the issues of liberty that are uh, that it presents, and um, and in our ongoing struggle Boy. with our government to to preserve those those principles of of you know of there there's a lot of uh... liberty. There's a lot of there's a lot of you know there's a lot of stuff to like and there's a lot of stuff to really break your heart about this whole thing and um, I I really appreciate you being on Mr Mumford and uh, we are out of time sadly but uh, hopefully we'll be able to have you back on sometime. Thank you. I, I would love that. Dean, thanks for being on and we'll ha- we'll see you again next Monday. And Thank you, folks. You'll see me or hear me tomorrow. And as always, thanks for listening.
The political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. at other people's expense. The Clinton Global Initiative, which brings philanthropists and CEOs together with nonprofits to make concrete commitments aimed at some of the world's toughest problems. Almost 10 years in, they have leveraged billions of dollars in assistance in more than 180 countries. CGI was designed to tackle big global challenges in bite-sized pieces with the conviction that regardless of size or scope, our problems will yield to concerted action and innovative partnerships of individuals, NGOs, businesses, and governments. We have to now find a way to triumph together. All the problems that we face, from climate change to financial contagion to nuclear proliferation, are too complex and cross-cutting for any one government or indeed for governments to solve alone. Because we believe that ending hunger is not only possible, but it is both a moral and strategic imperative. Hillary Clinton is trying to shift the spotlight to global warming. The presidential contender unveiling her plans to combat climate change. Together with innovative partners from the public and private sectors, we're working to make homes, universities, and cities more energy efficient. We share a common future, and we are here to find common ground. Women must be empowered. It's classic Bill Clinton, by using his birthday to help the causes he champions, from combating climate change to obesity and even HIV AIDS. Help bring new dignity and respect to women and girls all over the world. And in so doing, bring new strength and stability to families as well. We are trying to do something no one has ever done before. A new report today claims that the Clinton Foundation gives about 10% of its money that it raises to actual charities and the services that they offer. It has been reported you've made five million making speeches. The president made more than a hundred million dollars. Well, if, if you, you have no reason to remember, but we came out of the White House not only dead broke, but in debt. Six years ago, Hillary Clinton was about to become Secretary of State. Barack Obama had nominated her. Everyone knew she was going to be confirmed by the Senate, going to be confirmed easily. But there was a thought, there was a question, there was a doubt out there about a potential conflict of interest. The Clinton Foundation dropping its self-imposed ban on collecting funds from foreign governments and entities. And now the Washington Post reports total contributions to that foundation amount to $2 billion. There's a lot of money sloshing around. Everything is blurred, and it's not good. The questions scream out at me. 
what in the world happened with the foundation and these ulterior motives and this money and the email server. I'm sorry. So scream out at me. The amount of schmoozing involved and crossing lines and one person putting money in a foundation and then Clinton getting unbelievable amounts for his speeches, contracts going one way or another, it's not good. I look forward to working with all of you, particularly the appropriators. Uh, we have a lot of work to do, and it is such important uh, work that lies ahead. is a continent that has been a chamber of horrors for decades. It's really not the fault of the African people. It's largely a result of the kind of system that's been perpetuated there. You have these oligarchs which dominate these countries that oftentimes have natural resources that can be very lucrative. And these oligarchs strike deals with foreign corporations or foreign governments who in effect prop them up and put them in power. And in exchange, these oligarchs give these entities access to rich mineral deposits. And the Clintons, you would expect to be opposed to this sort of thing. And that's at least what their language does. Our countries have deepened our cooperation on many issues, including good governance and transparency, energy, regional security, and advancing peace and development in the Niger Delta. The problem is their words are different from their actions. The one that's clearly taken an impressive trajectory of development, and the people here still think Kagame is the man to take them to another level. President Paul Kagame has walked all around the crowd, thanking the people for electing him and opposed as chairman of the RPF for president of the RPF for another seven years' time. But his public days are far from entrenching democracy in Rwanda. He's actually eroding it by silencing the opposition. Paul Kagame has been praised by Bill Clinton and the Clinton Foundation. But the fact of the matter is Paul Kagame has a terrible human rights record. He's accused of aiding military operations in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo, and that actually forced the recruitment of child soldiers. The UN has identified him as being involved in activities that entailed massive human rights violations. 
newer opposition parties that have been formed in the last year or two have one by one been silenced or otherwise excluded from the race. And individuals, not only politicians, but even journalists, for example, and other Rwandans who may have views different from those of the government, have found themselves at the receiving end of what has become quite a violent campaign of intimidation. Well, Paul Kagame is a friend of Bill Clinton. I want to say a special word of appreciation for the leadership of President Kagame. I'm greatly humbled uh, to receive this Clinton Global Citizen Award. He's actually given awards by Bill Clinton for his conduct as the leader of that country, and they regale him as a great military leader. This is the sort of legitimization that we don't want of these kinds of dictators and leaders. That's the kind of legitimization that the Clintons have engaged in. And they've done it in a way that creates commercial opportunities for donors and friends and allies who want to do business in Africa. Business in Africa means you're dealing with dictators who are going to give you access to, say, mineral rights or oil drilling rights, but you're going to have to pay them off. The Clintons partner with foreign entities who want access to Africa, and specifically mining companies or energy companies who need to get concessions for access to oil or natural gas or the rights to mine for gold. Those two make a powerful alliance because these companies will give money to the Clintons, either in the form of speaking fees or in the form of donations to the Clinton Foundation, and the Clintons will then, in effect, do their bidding before the halls of power and corridors of power in Africa. And they will go to foreign governments and encourage them to do business with individuals who are putting money in their pocket. And this leads to some amazing fits of behavior that, in a way, are just reminiscent of 19th century colonialism. A perfect example of this is Ambassador Joe Wilson. Joe Wilson is a longtime friend of the Clintons. In fact, he endorsed Hillary Clinton in the 2008 presidential election. And it was also thought that he might become a senior official in Hillary Clinton's State Department. But the fact of the matter is Joe Wilson was up to something far more nefarious during Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State. In 2009, shortly after she became Secretary of State, when Wilson was the vice chairman of a company called Jarge Capital, they took out a 50-year lease on 400,000 hectares in South Sudan. South Sudan was in the middle of a civil war, and this lease was actually signed with warlords who were involved in the civil war. These individuals who were engaged in massive human rights violations, including the massacre of opponent tribes. And basically what Joe Wilson was engaged in was something called investing in sovereignty changes. They were basically cutting deals, lucrative deals, worth potentially hundreds of millions of dollars with these warlords. And the expectation was simple. These warlords would take power, then they would give them access to these lands where they could make huge amounts of money exploring for natural gas, exploring for oil, and for mineral rights. Ambassador Joe Wilson isn't the only Clinton friend and foundation donor who was working in war-torn countries. Swedish mining investor Lucas Lundin has pledged $100 million to the Clinton Foundation. He did that in 2007. 
and his most lucrative mining operations are in the war-torn country of the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is a country that perhaps has the most horrific human rights situation on the face of the earth. By the time Lucas Lundin made his $100 million pledge to the Clinton Foundation, his Congo operation was making, quote, staggering profits, end quote, according to his own financial statements. His overall capitalization was $20 billion. But for those profits to remain staggering, U.S. policy under Hillary Clinton had to remain unchanged. That's a problem. Hillary Clinton, as a senator back in 2006, supported something called the Congo Relief Security and Democracy Promotion Act. As the law's name implies, the goal was to bring reform to Congo. That's not something that Lucas Lundin would want. So in 2009, when Hillary became Secretary of State, she reversed course 180 degrees and went from supporting reform in Congo to supporting the status quo, which is exactly what Lucas Lundin would want who, of course, had committed $100 million to the Clinton Foundation. But Congo isn't the only scandal-plagued country where Clinton benefactors have made millions. Africa's most populous nation, Nigeria, is full of promise. But fulfilling that promise is sometimes a struggle. Plagued by corruption and mismanagement, the resource-rich country has a poverty rate of over 50%. Look at a country like Nigeria, which is really a cesspool of corruption. In fact, people will say it is perhaps the most corrupt country in the world. It's rich in natural resources, it produces a lot of oil, but that money never trickles down to the people. It goes to the oligarchs who run the country, who oftentimes take that money and put it in Swiss bank accounts in a way that, of course, the people of Nigeria can never benefit from. And you see, there's a federal law in the United States which says if foreign governments that receive U.S. assistance aren't transparent in how they spend that money, that they will not be able to get U.S. foreign assistance anymore. It's about transparency. But there's a way around that law. You can get a waiver from that law. How? By getting the U.S. Secretary of State to grant you a waiver. Uh, we intend to remain very supportive on your reform efforts. Uh, thank you for mentioning uh, the work we did together on the elections, we're also very supportive of uh, the uh, anti-corruption uh, uh, reform efforts, more transparency in the work that uh, you and, and your team is uh, also championing, uh, because we really believe that uh, uh, the future for uh, Nigeria is limitless. So in the case of Nigeria, they receive hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. foreign assistance. They've not made progress in being more transparent. And of course, they've gotten exemptions from Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State. What's so curious about this is what was happening commercially to the Clintons while this was going on. Bill Clinton, for the first time ever, gets paid highly lucrative speeches in Nigeria, which had never happened before. In fact, he gets paid to do two speeches for $700,000 apiece by a businessman in Nigeria who just happens to be close with the president of that country. Keep in mind, by the way, that his normal speaking fee is less than $200,000 a speech. So this was an enormous payday for Bill Clinton. Okay, now we'll begin the panel. One of the pinnacles of power in that country is a gentleman named Gilbert Chigori. 
Gilbert Chiguri, who has committed $1 billion to the Clinton Global Initiative, is connected to another individual in the Clinton orbit. That would be Mark Rich, the billionaire who was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list that was suddenly and surprisingly pardoned by Bill Clinton in 2001. Mark Rich, you might recall, is somebody who is trading oil with the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran at the same time that the Ayatollah was holding 50 Americans hostage. He also had a long history of busting UN sanctions by trading oil with the apartheid regime in South Africa and a whole host of other nefarious governments. Well, Gilbert Chiguri, the high Clinton donor, was business partners with Mark Rich. Together, they sopped up oil assets in Nigeria and sold them on the oil market for the benefit of a corrupt individual who was leading Nigeria at the time named General Abacha. Abacha smuggled, by some estimates, four to eight billion dollars out of the country and put them in European bank accounts. Gilbert Chigori was indicted and convicted in Europe for helping him to do that. He was charged for aiding and abetting a criminal enterprise and on money laundering charges. And the suffering that ends up being done here is by the people of Nigeria who see their leadership getting a pass from the United States. The elites in those countries are getting rich, the Clintons are getting rich, and the money somehow never trickles down to the people of Nigeria. Sadly, this theme of resources not trickling down to those most in need is a common one when it comes to the Clintons. measured around seven points on the Richter scale and its epicenter fell just 10 miles from the capital port of France. Haiti's ambassador to the U.S. has described the event as a catastrophe of major proportions. So far we have no information regarding the casualties. The, the war is coming to an end! It was a big earthquake. It lasts like 15 seconds, I think. Probably the most devastating humanitarian crisis that Hillary Clinton faced during her tenure at the State Department was the tragic earthquake in Haiti. It happened in January of 2010, and literally in a matter of seconds, 250,000 people were estimated to have died, and a large portion of the Haitian infrastructure and economy was just decimated. It was a crisis on a massive scale. The United States is offering our full assistance to Haiti and to others in the region. Uh, we will be providing both civilian and military disaster relief and humanitarian assistance. And our prayers are with the people who have suffered, uh, their families uh, and their loved ones. In the days and weeks that followed the earthquake in January of 2010, Hillary Clinton made visits to Haiti. And here's the latest on Haiti. U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton arrived in Port-au-Prince just about an hour ago. She is the highest-ranking U.S. official in Haiti right now since Tuesday's earthquake. She's meeting with Haitian leaders and international officials to discuss the rescue and relief effort. In fact, on her first visit, which occurred days after the earthquake, they literally had to stop traffic going in to the airport at Port-au-Prince. 
There, of course, were relief supplies that were being flown in, but that traffic was stopped so the Secretary of State could come and assess the damage. There is a perception, and there have been complaints or reports of bottlenecks that there's a lot of aid coming in, but it's very hard to get it out to the people who need it. That's just not true. The aid is coming in. We're getting it out. There's just not enough of it yet. She flew in with her political aides on a large federal airplane. She landed at the airport. She made a large press conference, made statements about her commitment to rebuilding this country, and then she was soon whisked away, headed back to Washington, D.C. Theirs is a city in ruins, a country which can do little but wait for help to arrive. The international community responded in the way that you would expect it to. That is, large amounts of money were committed, up to $13 billion from international relief organizations. And of course you had the official role of the State Department, which would be point on U.S. taxpayer dollars going to Haiti for the purposes of relief. I want to assure the people of Haiti that the United States is a friend, a partner, and a supporter. Hillary Clinton's State Department would oversee the reconstruction effort, with Chief of Staff Cheryl Mills responsible for the allocation of U.S. tax dollars through USAID. And Bill Clinton, already appointed Special Envoy to Haiti for the United Nations, was named co-chair of the Interim Haiti Recovery Commission, along with a former Haitian Prime Minister. I hope it will be rebuilt in, in a much stronger and more sustainable way, and I think the Haitians want that. So this was clearly a Clinton operation from the beginning. Now the Haitians had their own ideas about how best to rebuild their country. They wanted new roads. They wanted buildings rebuilt. And that's what you would expect. This is how you recover from an earthquake. The problem is that the Clintons had their own agenda. The interests of major donors who had a vested interest in spending that money in Haiti in ways that would benefit them. And so you immediately had this clash between the Haitians and the Clintons. And Haitians complained almost immediately that they were shut out of the decision-making process, that it was really Bill Clinton and a few of his friends that were calling the shots in the IHRC. And they made some monumentally bad decisions that not only didn't benefit the Haitian people, but ended up putting money in the pockets of major Clinton donors who had economic stakes in Haiti. We have been united behind a single goal making investments in this country's people and your infrastructure. So it's a classic example of what some people call disaster capitalism. Disaster capitalism in that a natural disaster creates opportunities for rebuilding to take place, but also for self-enrichment to take place. And if you look at the Clintons and the promises that were made and the results that actually followed, it is a tragic story of crony capitalism gone awry. The single largest relief project that the United States committed taxpayer dollars to, $124 million to be exact, was a project called Caracol, a textile factory that was built in the northern part of the country that was supposed to create some 60,000 jobs and was supposed to create tremendous economic growth. 
there's a problem here already. You see, the earthquake affected the southern part of Haiti. The northern part of the country was entirely unaffected. But who were the beneficiaries of this? Companies like Gap, Target, and Walmart, to name a few. The Caracol factory was built, but it didn't create 60,000 jobs. It created barely 5,000 jobs. But the major American companies who got textiles tariff-free, made at low wages, benefited enormously. And the end effect on the Haitians was very, very minimal. If you look at some of the infrastructure projects that were undertaken, the Clintons had very grand plans to uh, build large tracts of homes, and there were contractors that were selected for those projects. Sometimes the contractors had experience, sometimes they did not. There's one company in Florida that spent a million dollars getting equipment into Haiti. They had experience in disaster relief, but according to the owners of that company, they only made a small donation to the Clinton Foundation. And guess what? They didn't get any relief contracts. On the other hand, the contractors who did win the awards were given the opportunity to build homes, and in some instances were supposed to build tens of thousands of homes for Haitians. They ended up building a fraction of that. For instance, the New Settlements program was supposed to build 15,000 homes for $53 million. Instead, it built 2,600 homes, less than a quarter of the original estimate, for $90 million, or $47 million over budget. And they got away with it. So you had contracts going to these relief organizations that were also involved with the Clinton Global Initiative. And you had this one organization, Dahlberg, that was supposed to do an assessment for relocating people that suffered from the earthquake. They determined that people should be moved to a site that happened to be on a cliff that was highly unstable. USAID's Inspector General reviewed Dahlberg's recommendations and found them basically unusable. One member of the USAID shelter team was quoted by Rolling Stone magazine as saying that the recommendations were so bad, it looked like the team never even got out of their SUVs. Another person said that only one of the people that was sent to Haiti by Dahlberg actually spoke French. Telecom mogul Dennis O'Brien is one of the world's richest people, and he's finding opportunities in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The Irish billionaire is the largest private investor in Haiti through his company, Digicel, and he's now leading the Clinton Global Initiative efforts down in Haiti. Probably no one came out better in the Haitian reconstruction effort than an Irish billionaire named Dennis O'Brien. He's a Clinton Foundation donor, giving them between five and $10 million. He helped arrange speeches for Bill Clinton, too. The interests of the Obama administration, particularly the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, you know, all the, the, all the different things that have happened to help Haiti get up off the floor have been led by the U.S. And he was the owner of something called Digicel, which is the cell phone company at the time of the earthquake. As part of that relief effort, the State Department run by Hillary Clinton wanted to fund a mobile money transfer service that would allow Haitian citizens to transfer and receive money on their phones. Well, Digicel applied to be the recipient of that grant money. Four weeks after their application, Digicel actually sponsored a speech for Bill Clinton in Jamaica, and they paid him $225,000. And as it turns out, within four months of that speech, Digicel would receive the first installment of that grant money. The earthquake actually has been great for Digicel and Dennis O'Brien. 
more than four years since a magnitude 7.0 earthquake devastated Haiti. And outrage there is growing over the largely failed reconstruction effort, despite the hundreds of millions of dollars in aid that has been collected and spent by the IHRC, the Interim Haiti Recovery Commission. So whether you're talking about housing or cell phones, you see that the people that are closest to the Clintons have made out very well from the Haitian earthquake. The rest of the country, the ordinary people of Haiti, not so much. Haitian activists stage a protest outside Hillary Clinton's Manhattan office. The demonstrators claim billions of dollars were stolen through the Haiti Reconstruction Commission headed by Bill Clinton. They also say Haiti was used as a cover for foreign governments to funnel kickbacks of possibly hundreds of millions of dollars through the Clinton Foundation. They say it was done in exchange for favors that Hillary was doing for them as Secretary of State. The tragedy is we had an opportunity to rebuild in a way that would give the people of that country hope. Sadly, that opportunity was squandered, and what took place, rather than rebuilding Haiti, was the self-enrichment by friends of the Clintons. For all of Bill Clinton's talk about building Haiti back better, the fact remains that the most visible evidence of Clinton's role in the recovery isn't the improvement of daily life for everyday Haitians but the construction of new luxury hotels just miles from the folks who have been living in tarps, USAID, handed out immediately after the earthquake. We are telling the world of the crimes that Bill and Hillary Clinton are responsible for in Haiti. But while the world eventually lost interest in Haiti's recovery, the influence and connections afforded to donors from the Clinton Foundation appear to have been lessons learned by others. So how much do connections to the Clintons matter when you're talking about Haiti? Consider the case of gold mining. The government of Haiti had not granted a gold mining concession in 50 years. They decided to do so during the reconstruction of their country, which was being overseen by Bill and Hillary Clinton. What company did they select to get this gold mining permit? A company called VCS Mining. VCS Mining had very little experience in gold mining, but what did they have? they had connections. Shortly after they got that concession, someone joined their board of directors. It just happened to be Tony Rodham, brother of Hillary Rodham Clinton. It was a true disaster, a true disaster that followed the earthquake, which was the natural disaster. This was a man-made Clinton-caused disaster in relief that led to the wasting of enormous sums of money, the enrichment of elites that were friends with the Clintons, and the Haitians were left in a situation where their life was really not much better than it was the day after the earthquake happened. pipeline is firing off a war of opinions. Environmental activists marched in Washington today to protest plans for the Keystone XL oil pipeline. A $7 billion project to transport 800,000 barrels of tar sands oil a day from Canada down to the Gulf Coast. In Washington, a showdown on the Senate floor today over the Keystone XL pipeline. The vote to approve the controversial pipe project uh, had big political implications. The pipeline would create 20,000 jobs, but opponents say the environmental risk is too great. One of the touchstones of the climate change debate has been the Keystone XL pipeline. 
It's designed to carry oil from Canada through the United States to refineries in Louisiana and in Texas. The environmental movement has wholeheartedly rejected this deal from the beginning because they believe that it's going to further contribute to the problems of climate change. Now, you would think that the Clintons would be opposed to the Keystone XL pipeline deal because of those concerns. And perhaps they might be, except for one or two problems, or should I say one or two million problems. You see, when Hillary Clinton became Secretary of State in late 2008, there was already an issue related to the Keystone XL pipeline sitting on her desk. She was going to have to sign an environmental and economic impact statement and decide whether the Keystone XL pipeline should go forward. At that precise time, Bill Clinton gets a lucrative offer of nearly $2 million to give 10 speeches in Canada for the first time ever from a company called TD Bank Investment Group. He gave the last speech in May of 2011. Three months later, Hillary's State Department releases an environmental impact statement that was seen as largely supportive of the Keystone XL pipeline in a way that was massively controversial. Hillary Clinton, in effect, was betraying the environmental movement by greenlighting this deal, when she had in her hands the power to kill this deal in its crib. It was shocking. Organizations like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth were stunned. They wanted investigations, but everybody was mystified. Nobody could understand why Hillary Clinton would sign off on this deal, particularly when she had been in favor of dealing with climate change. And her boss, Barack Obama, by all indications, seemed to be opposed to this deal as well. It's also a time for a new approach to climate change. We know we've got to deal with global warming. We're seeing the effects of it. We need to invest in clean energy technology today so that we can create new high-paying jobs to protect our environment, to grow our economy, and to finally break our addiction to foreign oil. How did we go from the Clintons being in favor of fighting climate change and dealing with fossil fuel dependence to Hillary Clinton signing off on the Keystone XL pipeline, the evidence that we found was that it was about the money. This was not a philosophical change. This was not a new way of thinking about global warming. This was a way of taking $2 million in cash to essentially buy a decision by the Secretary of State. Why is the TD Bank Investment Group so interesting? Because they just happen to be one of the largest shareholders in the Keystone XL pipeline itself. When we looked at Bill Clinton's pattern of giving speeches, we looked at who was paying him, when they were paying him, and if they have ever paid for a speech before. What's so stunning is that TD Bank had never sponsored a speech by Bill Clinton before. And then suddenly, in late 2008, when Hillary Clinton has been announced to be the Secretary of State, and when sitting on her desk is the matter of the Keystone XL pipeline, they suddenly decide to sponsor these speeches. And when people realized that the Clintons had pocketed about $2 million at the precise time Hillary Clinton was making this decision, it all now suddenly made sense. Because as we've seen repeated over and over and over again, when it comes to the Clintons, you have to follow the money. And in the case of the Keystone XL pipeline, they seem to have abandoned their principles, their commitment, as it was, to combating global warming and dealing with our dependence on fossil fuels. They jettisoned that when $2 million showed up and suddenly came out in favor of the Keystone XL pipeline. 
when you see this sort of pattern of behavior, you can't come to any other conclusion that it's a system of pay to play. And again, other entities appear to have picked up on this business model too. Well, Bill Clinton has been paid enormous sums of money over the years to give speeches. On average, he gets a little less than $200,000 per speech. But something happened in late 2008. His speaking fees skyrocketed after he'd been out of office for years. The reason was his wife had become Secretary of State. In fact, 11 of the 13 speeches for which Bill Clinton has been paid half a million dollars or more occurred precisely when Hillary was the most powerful diplomat in the world. You will never contribute to an organization that will give you a higher probability of having your good intentions turn into real positive changes in other people's lives. That will give you a better chance than what you've done here tonight. His single biggest speech payday came from the Swedish telecom company Ericsson. And it's a very, very unusual and troubling story. Now, Ericsson is a Swedish telecom company that in 2009 and 2010 was in trouble with Hillary Clinton's State Department because Ericsson was selling a lot of telecom equipment to Iran, to Belarus, and to other oppressive governments about which the State Department was concerned. Ericsson risked being put on a list by the federal government in the United States for trading with an enemy state. There was actually an effort being put forward in Washington to broaden Iranian sanctions to include the very technology that Ericsson was selling to the Iranian government. So it's against this background that Ericsson decided now might be a good time to hire Bill Clinton to give a speech. They had never paid for a speech by him before, and they decided to go in big, $750,000 for a single speech. Seven days after he gave that speech, Hillary's State Department came out with a statement which said, we are not going to broaden sanctions on Iran to include technologies like telecom. We're going to rely and expect companies like Ericsson to police themselves. It was a massive win for Ericsson. Ericsson was able to avoid having to deal with a regulatory battle in Washington, giving up contracts that were highly lucrative in these countries, and being put on a list that would create an enormous diplomatic problem for them, all because essentially they paid Bill Clinton to give a speech for $750,000. Will you continue to give speeches? Oh yeah, I, I gotta pay our bills. So the question is, why do we see the Clintons reversing decades of policy positions that they've held so closely on issues like human rights and environment? And a big clue comes from the folks that are giving the Clinton Foundation literally tens of millions of dollars. And one, if not the biggest donor to the foundation, is a Canadian named Frank Joustra. Joustra is in the mining business, hardly something you'd call environmentally friendly. And he has interests all over the world. And he used his relationship with the Clintons to benefit those interests, regardless of the environmental concerns. A great example of this is what happened in Colombia. What's so interesting about the relationship that the Clintons have with Frank Joustra is they tend to show up in these foreign countries together at the same time. Frank Joustra's made billions of dollars over the years in the so-called penny stock market in Canada, which is highly open to manipulation. He's been very successful in this area. Now, the Vancouver Stock Exchange is not like the New York Stock Exchange in the United States. 
This is the stock market or an exchange that is dominated by penny stocks, made up of a lot of natural resources stocks. It's sort of the wild, wild west of investing. It's called Dodge City sometimes. And the reason is because there's a lot of speculators, there's a lot of misinformation that's put around, and there are a lot of mining companies who don't really have any assets but will proclaim to have gotten the rights to some lucrative gold mine, let's say, uh, and then they send that news out to the public in the hope that it will lead to a flood of people buying the penny stock so the shareholders can sell their assets. So in June of 2010, Bill Clinton and Frank Justra fly to Bogota, Colombia. And who arrives there at roughly the same time? Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The big thing from the news conference was where Bill and Hillary were dining the other night in Bogota. Uh, I had a chance to talk to about her dinner experience in the Zona Rosa. And here's what she had to say. Dinner was good? Yeah, it was excellent in every way. So it was like... Eating in the States, but eating in Bogota. <laughs> well, it was, uh, it was a real treat to be in Bogota and uh, to be with people who love this city so much, including my husband. Now, in her memoirs, Hillary Clinton says that this is just a happy coincidence. But when you see what follows, you realize that this is no coincidence. The following morning, Bill Clinton has a breakfast meeting with the outgoing president of Colombia, President Uribe. Then, like a tag team, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has a noon lunch meeting with him, and she grants him several favors, including technical agreements that the Colombian government wants. In the days that follow, something dramatic happens. Frank Justra has three companies that get major concessions from the Colombian government, Pacific Rubiales, Petro America, and Prima Colombia Properties. One of those, Prima Colombia Properties, gets a concession to cut timber in a rainforest in Colombia along the Pacific coast. And that timber is not intended to export to the United States, but is intended for export to China. There's an outrage and upset environmentalists who realize what's going on, and eventually that permit is yanked by a future president of Colombia, but not before Frank Juster's company is able to profit from cutting down these rainforests, which again is a behavior that runs so contrary to what the Clintons profess to be in favor of. We all know that in order to build low carbon economies of the future, we need sustainable forests. I also know the future of our planet depends on healthy standing forests. They've talked about the problems of deforestation. They've talked about the problems of the need for successful growing forests to mitigate a carbon dioxide in the air. And yet, when this commercial opportunity was presented to a major donor of theirs, they seemed to be very much supportive of that and, in fact, helped to get him those concessions. He deserved the credit for this. This was his idea, not mine, and he raised the money. And it's an astonishing achievement. My job is to make sure that it's not in vain, that he gets the return on his investment and his compassion and his commitment. The Clintons appear to have changed their stance on issues even more significant than the environment in ways that benefit those who have put money in their pockets.
I represent a president and a country committed to a vision of a world without nuclear weapons and to taking the concrete steps necessary that will help us get there. The Indian nuclear deal, I think, is so troubling because this is a core national security issue. One of the signature achievements in foreign policy for Bill Clinton was pushing the test ban treaty and the non-proliferation treaty. Today in New York, the United Nations General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to adopt the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and open it for signature later this month. The NPT has been sort of the holy grail when it comes to nuclear disarmament, something that the Clintons have been supportive of, not just for years, but for decades. That was all thrown asunder in 1998 when the Indian government tested nuclear weapons underground. India's action threatens the stability of Asia and challenges the firm international consensus to stop all nuclear testing. These were tests that truly shocked the world. Even the CIA was not aware that these tests were about to take place. Clinton's reaction was volcanic. He felt betrayed by the Indian government, and as a result, he imposed sanctions on India, essentially saying, you're not going to get access to U.S. nuclear technology until you sign the MPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. In 2005, the Indian government wanted to get these sanctions lifted. Not only do they have an interest in expanding their civilian nuclear base, they live in a neighborhood where some pretty tough customers and rivals have nuclear weapons themselves. First of all, you've got Pakistan, which is right next door, which is widely believed to have nuclear weapons. And then you have China, a longtime rival of India, which has a nuclear arsenal. The Clintons said that they were in favor of giving the Indian government some access. But the problem is it didn't go nearly as far as the Indian government wanted. So in 2005, they started making donations to the Clinton Foundation. This morning, yet another shady donation to the Clinton Foundation has surfaced, this time tied to a donor from India, apparently a friend of Bill Clinton. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars from Indian interests flowing into the Clinton Foundation. And we're talking about at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in speeches that Bill Clinton was paid by interested parties in the Indian nuclear deal. Amar Singh, according to Clinton disclosures, has given between one and five million dollars to the Clinton Foundation in a push to get them to support Indian access to nuclear technology. He's a member of parliament who has gotten in fistfights on the floor of the parliament who's been charged with bribing members of parliament to get certain pieces of legislation passed. You see, the problem is when you ask Amar Singh, he says, it wasn't my money. I don't have that kind of money. I couldn't have given him that amount of money. And in fact, when you look at Indian public records, you see that Amar Singh doesn't have a net worth anything close to being able to give that amount of money. So where did the money come from? Well, sometimes the most obvious answer is the correct one. Sant Chantwal is an Indian businessman who has been close to the Clintons for years. He pledged to raise $5 million for her 2008 presidential campaign. And Bill Clinton was at his son's wedding. They actually named him as a trustee of the Clinton Foundation. When Hillary Clinton was first running for the Senate in 2000, Sant Chatwal was in trouble with a federal agency called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. He basically owed them millions of dollars from unpaid loans. Well, in 2000, Chatwell throws a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton, 
and he brings in half a million dollars. A few months later, with Bill Clinton still president of the United States, Fed Chatwall's case with the FDIC was abruptly settled for a mere $125,000. So basically, the federal government got pennies on the dollar. He would actually go on to plead guilty for funneling $180,000 in illegal campaign contributions to Hillary Clinton, among others. And no one seems to have made the connection. Well, maybe one reason no one made the connection is because the Clinton Foundation mysteriously erased any mention of Sant Chatwall from the website once he had admitted to his illegal activity. So here we are years later, and we've got this donation in a guy's name who swears he didn't actually make the donation. And you've got this longtime Clinton benefactor who actually gets the highest civilian award in India because of his role in changing Hillary Clinton's mind on this nuke deal. Something Chatwal says he's worked with everybody and even laid the foundation of the Indo-US nuclear deal. So the Indian government says that they have given you this award for your role in pushing the Indo-US nuclear deal forward. How exactly would you describe the role you played in this? Well, I can tell you Indian nuclear power deal. If you look at it, I'm the first one I laid the foundation. On the eve of the vote in 2008 to approve Indian access to U.S. civilian nuclear technology, Amar Singh, who barely knows Hillary Clinton, had a two-hour meeting with her where they discussed the Indian nuclear deal. Amar Singh says that the dinner meeting resulted in her telling him that she was supportive of the deal and that she was making efforts to make sure that the deal did get through. And lo and behold, by 2008, Hillary Clinton was fully in support and in favor of this policy in a way that was a complete reversal of the position that she had taken before. In other words, the flow of money had led the Clintons to change their positions on the non-proliferation treaty, and specifically, India getting access to U.S. nuclear technology. This was a decision that was wholly out of step, wholly inconsistent with the progressive liberal agenda. Hillary Clinton made the decision of reversing her previous position after the flow of funds to the Clinton Foundation and her husband gave some speeches in India. But this wouldn't be the last time Hillary reversed herself regarding nuclear weapons technology. Shockingly, Bill and Hillary would end up receiving money from folks that were looking to make something happen a lot closer to home. I think the Russian uranium story is perhaps the most shocking and most blatant example of how the Clintons operate. This is a story about the Russian state nuclear agency, American uranium, $145 million in cash, and the Clintons. At the end of the day, this is a story about buying influence and selling influence. The Clintons are the sellers of influence, the Canadian investors and the Russians are the buyers. Bill Clinton had gone to the Central Asian country of Kazakhstan in 2005 with Frank Joustra. Kazakhstan is a country that's been run since the collapse of the Soviet Union by a dictator named Nazarbayev, who shuts down political opposition and tortures political opponents. The ostensible purpose of the visit to Kazakhstan by Bill Clinton was to talk with Nazarbayev about AIDS HIV. The problem is Kazakhstan really does not have an AIDS HIV problem. So that explanation really doesn't make sense. 
What makes far more sense is that Frank Juicer wanted access to very lucrative Kazakh uranium mines. Kazakhstan is one of the largest producers of uranium in the world. Bill Clinton arrives there with Frank Justra, and they have a series of meetings with Kazakh officials. There's a press conference where Bill Clinton stands with the dictator of Kazakhstan, and he praises the human rights record. He praises that elections are being held in the country, and he even says that Kazakhstan should head up something called the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Think about that for a second. Bill Clinton is saying that a known human rights violator who's been condemned by human rights organizations around the world should head up a human rights organization. They go from a press conference to a dinner where Frank Justra, Nazarbayev, the dictator of Kazakhstan, and Bill Clinton meet and talk. Well, two days after that meeting, Frank Justra finally gets his uranium concessions worth hundreds of millions of dollars. A couple of weeks after that, Bill Clinton gets his $30 million from Frank Justra, the first payment in what will become more than $100 million in pledges and commitments and donations made by Frank Justra. So it's really, in a way, a simple story in that they all are walking away from the table with something that they want. Nazarbayev is getting the legitimacy of an ex-president, saying what a nice and kind leader he is. Frank Juster gets his uranium concession, and Bill Clinton and his foundation get cold, hard cash. Now let's move to chapter two of this story, which is even more sinister. You see, the international uranium market is very competitive. The Kremlin sees dominance and control of the uranium market as a source of national power. Frank Justra takes that uranium concession he got in Kazakhstan and puts it into a company in a so-called reverse merger, which was one way for a private company to go public to form something called Uranium One. It's a company traded on the stock market in Canada, and they start acquiring uranium concessions in places like Wyoming, Texas, New Mexico, and Utah. And by 2009, they have what is expected to be 50% of future uranium production in the United States. This gets the interest of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. And in fact, there are State Department cables that were leaked through WikiLeaks, which show that Hillary was aware of the fact that the Russians took great care to try to dominate the international uranium market. Well, the Russians want to buy this asset, and they offer a 40% overprice on the share of the stock. And for this transaction to go through, it has to be approved by the U.S. federal government. Why? Because uranium is regarded as a critical industry in the United States. After all, this is used for our civilian nuclear reactors and goes into nuclear weapons. So it goes before the federal government where it needs to be signed off by a series of federal agencies, including the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. As Hillary Clinton is contemplating this, shareholders in Uranium One, including Frank Justra, have sent more than $145 million to the Clinton Foundation. The chairman of that company at the precise time is a guy named Ian Telford, who is also making donations to the Clinton Foundation, as is Frank Holmes, who is another major Uranium One shareholder and Hillary Clinton, who has a record of opposing precisely these kinds of deals, comes out and says, you know what, I think this is a good deal. Let's let Vladimir Putin take control of what is now 20% of U.S. uranium production. Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton are the only figures in American politics 
who are willing to do this deal and who could actually pull it off because they had a reputation that runs so contrary to what they're doing. I mean, this is what the Clinton Foundation does, right? This is what they talk about politically, their support for human rights, their concerns about proliferation, their concerns about issues related to Russian aggression. There's no doubt that when Putin came back in and said he was going to be president, uh, that did change the relationship. We have to stand up to his bullying. And What's so interesting when you consider this uranium deal are the actions of a small Canadian investment firm called Salida Capital. Salida Capital, in 2010, as this deal was going down, committed to give millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation, and they also sponsored a speech by Bill Clinton in Canada. Salida Capital is also the name of a wholly owned subsidiary of Rosatom. Who is Rosatom? Well, this is the government agency in Russia that controls their nuclear arsenal, that built nuclear reactors in Iran, and engages in nuclear technology exchanges with rogue countries like North Korea. What this means, in essence, is that the Russian government, specifically Rosatom, was funneling money through a subsidiary directly to the Clinton Foundation. But the payday didn't end there. Four months before Hillary Clinton's State Department would sign off on the Russian purchase of Uranium One, Bill Clinton got paid $500,000 to give a single speech in Moscow. He was being paid by a firm called Renaissance Capital, which has a long history of association with Russian intelligence services. What makes this speech stand out is not only the timing of when he's being paid, but the amount that he's being paid. You see, the last time Bill Clinton gave a speech in Russia was five years earlier. At that time, he was paid about a one-third of what he was being paid this time. Why is Russian control of 20% of U.S. uranium so troubling? If you're in an era where nuclear weapons are a reality, where nuclear energy is an important component of energy production in the United States, and in increasingly around the world, Control of uranium is absolutely crucial. And unlike oil or natural gas can be found in so many places around the world, there are precious few places where you can find significant and large amounts of uranium that you can produce on a commercial scale. What we've essentially done is handed this precious resource to Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. They're not only engaged in aggression in places like Ukraine, but they've been very aggressive in fighting American interests around the globe. Russia's not an ally. Russia's not a friend. Vladimir Putin's Russia is a rival of the United States, and yet we've given them control over this precious resource. Uranium, the key mineral in nuclear generation, is a domestic resource. This is what's going to power America. I think a lot of people in middle America would be surprised to know that the Russian government is doing business in places like Colorado or Wyoming or Utah. These are small mining towns. These are operations that have existed for a while, that have been under the control of American companies or for a while Canadian companies. But it's now Russian companies that control this, and those companies are controlled by the Russian government. Having read through the archives of the KGB, the files that they have been released. I can tell you that they look at the United States as weak and ineffectual. This is a thuggish government that is engaged in massive human rights violations. There are opponents of this regime that have been killed or have disappeared. There's been persecution of human rights organizations. There's been persecution of homosexuals. 
And it's shocking and stunning to me that there has not been more attention focused to this fact, that we have given this critical resource to somebody who is engaged in so much nefarious behavior. Greetings from Washington. I want to thank all of you for your work to root out corruption that weakens economic development, feeds black markets and organized crime, and undermines the promise of democracy. As we work together to eradicate corruption in our own country, we should also maintain the highest standards of transparency and accountability in our development efforts around the world. Corruption in emerging markets and fragile democracies undermines the confidence of citizens and investors alike while responsible governance helps to foster sustainable economic development and political stability. I believe in the oldest adage in American politics, which is, follow the money. Enormous amounts of money have flowed to the Clintons, from foreign governments, foreign financiers, and businesses. Some of that money lands in their pocket. Some of it lands in their foundation. It's a pattern we've seen repeated over and over and over again all around the world. It's not a coincidence. Money exchanges hands and favors are done. Now Clinton friends and supporters will say there's no smoking gun. But look at American political history. People are convicted all the time for a pattern of behavior where, for example, they're engaged in insider trading on the stock market. So, for example, you have a foreign corporation or a foreign government that wants something from the State Department while Hillary Clinton is Secretary of State. They will make a large payment to the Clinton Foundation. That will be followed by favorable action on their behalf. If that happens one or two times, you might say, look, it's just a coincidence. But when you see the pattern recreated over and over and over again, you have to recognize that these events are connected. They've created a model for massive self-enrichment that allows you to go into so-called public service, but get extremely rich at the same time. And when friends and allies say that the Clintons aren't really that interested in money, their actions show otherwise. What's so shocking to a lot of people is that making of that money requires them to betray their progressive values. The environment, labor unions, women's rights, human rights. The Clintons are doing business and growing rich with the favor of the very individuals who you would expect to be their political opposite. For a very long time in American history, and probably still to this day, one of the worst things that could be said about you as a politician is that you were on the take from foreign interests. What the Clintons have essentially done is busted down the door and robbed the bank of that concept. When people think of the Clintons taking foreign money, they think it's a, maybe an insurance company from Great Britain, or they think it's from a supermarket chain in Canada. The fact of the matter is a lot of that money comes from the darkest, worst corners of the world. Are countries like Nigeria and Russia in the habit of giving money to politicians and not wanting something back? The Clintons are glad to take this money. It's made them fabulously wealthy. But what has it done for us? Before we had to worry about money from Wall Street and big labor, now we have to worry about it coming from around the world and infecting our politics and damaging our politics, everything from our uranium policy to our human rights policy. Nothing seems to be safe anymore. How is this not corruption? How is this not a crime? With the Clintons, nothing is sacred. Everything is for sale. But we are the ones who are paying the price. Maybe, just maybe, the American people are tired of being sold out.
was the air hostess on board the notorious Lolita Express, the billionaire's private jet at the center of a sex scandal making lurid headlines across the world. Sleazy Wall Street tycoon Jeffrey Epstein used the Lolita Express to ferry a bevy of beautiful young women. Among the passengers, former President Bill Clinton and Britain's Prince Andrew. On almost every trip that I did go on, there were young girls around. In this Inside Edition exclusive, Shantae Davies takes us inside the secret world of the Lolita Express, named for the controversial book and movie about a professor's infatuation with an underage girl. Shantae made several trips on Jeffrey Epstein's infamous Lolita Express. She says she was one of several young, attractive women hired to travel around the world, giving massages or yoga instruction to Epstein and his rich and powerful friends. When Shantae was hired, she was a struggling 22-year-old actress. She once played a lingerie model in a movie called Exposed. These designs are really great. Shantae worked as a masseuse, but says she never had sex with Epstein. Did you ever think that maybe more was going on than simple massages? Looking back, of course. Was there a bed on the airplane? Actually, yes, there was, yeah. On one memorable flight on board a plane like this provided by Air Hollywood, she says she made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for passengers, including Oscar winner Kevin Spacey, actor Chris Tucker, and even Bill Clinton. They were all flying to Africa on a humanitarian mission, and Jeffrey Epstein had given them the use of his jet. So you never gave oh. President Clinton a Muslim? No, I didn't. Shantae says when the plane landed in Africa, Clinton took her shopping, but she says nothing improper occurred. They had shut down a jewelry store for us, and I helped him pick out a bracelet for Chelsea. It was a jet-set lifestyle for sure, but Shantae says she felt uncomfortable about being part of Epstein's collection of young women. You saw young women around Jeffrey Epstein, and they didn't seem to have regular jobs, and you started wondering, why are they here? Yes, yes. When you look back, are there red flags that you should have seen at the time? Definitely, yeah. Why fly anyone out to be a masseuse when there's plenty of masseuses in the same city that you're in? Epstein served 13 months in prison for soliciting an underage girl for prostitution. Now just looking at the front page headlines the scandal has generated brings Shantae to tears. To have to deal with that and then on top of it defend my character, I'll have children one day, you know, and, and they'll read this. She wonders whether she'll ever be able to live down her time on the Lolita Express. More than anything, I just felt stupid. Yeah, I felt duped. We begin with a story of sex slaves, underage girls, a billionaire, murder, a prince, and at least one former U.S. president. What has been the biggest scandal in the U.K. since World War II has now come to the U.S., and it may involve former president Bill Clinton. The story surrounds this man, billionaire Jeffrey Epstein, who served time in 2008 for soliciting prostitution. That charge came as part of a plea deal. It all began in 2005 when Epstein was investigated after a woman reported that he paid her 14-year-old daughter $300 for sex. Now, since that initial claim, there have been more than 40 women who have come forward with claims that Epstein is a sexual predator and that he not only abused them, but shared them with famous and powerful friends. Well, flash forward to today, and a lawsuit is underway in Palm Beach, Florida. In that lawsuit, multiple mentions of former President Bill Clinton, who reportedly took multiple trips to Epstein's private island. You see it here. It's called Little St. James. It all happened between 2002 and 2005. Now, according to testimony in the lawsuit, at least one woman on that compound was there unwillingly. 
She is referred to as Jane Doe 102. She was forced to live as one of Epstein's underage sex slaves for years and was forced to have sex with politicians, businessmen, royalty, people working in academics, etc. Now, to be clear, in 2008, when the plea deal happened, Clinton cut off ties to Epstein, but maybe not. According to the UK Daily Mail, the lawsuit claims that Clinton was friends with an unnamed woman who kept images of naked, underage children on her computer, helped to recruit underage children for Epstein, and photographed underage females in sexually explicit poses. Now, while Clinton cut off ties with Epstein, this woman's abuses apparently did not end their relationship, as she was reportedly one of the 400 guests at Chelsea Clinton's 2010 wedding. So what did Bill Clinton know, and what was he a part of? According to the smoking gun, as part of a civil suit filed against Epstein by several of his victims, lawyers for the women floated the possibility of subpoenaing Clinton, since he might well be a source of relevant information about Epstein's activities. Now, while Clinton was never deposed, lawyers obtained Epstein's computerized phone directory, which included email addresses for Clinton, along with 21 phone numbers for him including those for his assistant, Doug Band, according to a court filing. Now, I spoke earlier with Dennis Hoff, the owner of the Bunny Ranch in Nevada, and a man who personally knows Bill Clinton. In fact, Hoff photographed Clinton with two of his Bunny Ranch girls at a charity event in Los Angeles in March of last year. I asked Hoff if with multiple trips to Little St. John Island, if there is any way that Bill Clinton was not aware of these underage girls. I don't believe it's possible. It's amazing that this happened and came to light. Uh, and I don't think Bill Clinton would ever want to be involved with an underage girl. But the fact that it's happening in front of his eyes and that the Secret Service guys uh, didn't do something about it is shocking. 21 phone numbers as well as email addresses uh, that were reportedly belonged to him that were uh, in possession of Jeffrey Epstein. What does that say to you? Well, it says, it says that, that this Epstein is just an absolute disgusting pig. I mean, to be messing around with underage girls, it, it's just unbelievable. Now, I, I give Bill Clinton uh, a, a little bit of a pass because, look, he had other parties after this all happened, and who went to it? Stephanopoulos, Katie Couric, Woody Allen, which is not a, not a good sign, I guess, uh, and Chelsea Handler. Uh, so it could be possible that, he, that Clinton did not know about this, but it's almost hard to believe. And that party that Hoff mentions there was just one party as compared to the multiple visits by Bill Clinton. But this story is much bigger than just former President Clinton. Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, is being connected to this scandal as well. In 2001, Virginia Roberts, a 17-year-old who now claims to have been held as Epstein's sex slave, was introduced to Prince Andrew while staying at a London home. Ms. Roberts claims that she was paid 10,000 pounds as a reward for having sex with Prince Andrew by Epstein. I spoke earlier with RTUK presenter Afshin Ratanzi, and he says that the scandal around Prince Andrew is growing daily. It is definitely building in the uh, infamous British tabloid press, who are uh, kind of at war with the royal family uh, in, as the general election campaign here proper begins. It is a kind of old story, but of course we are getting further facts because of the uh, plaintiff, in effect. Now, in the UK, this story, though, is a lot larger than just Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew. In fact, it seems like it involves this pedophilia ring that reaches into the highest levels of uh, 
British society, including presenters with the BBC, including uh, members of Parliament. It, it seems like this is a growing story that involves some 1,400 kids. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that and the development over the last year into that story? Yeah, around the world, the headlines from Britain tend to. Uh, in the international newspapers seem to make out that Britain is this uh, center of upper-class pedophilia and uh, indeed the press here also reflecting uh, those stories. There is a certain degree of frenzy about it, it has, has to be said, but at the same time the story keeps giving because uh, the latest, uh, quite apart from the fact that there have been entertainers jailed, quite apart from the fact that uh, close confidants of the powerful uh, have been jailed, uh, top public relations people and so on, now the story seems to be concerning not only uh, paedophile rings but actually murder and murder so close to the Palace of Westminster itself, the, the so-called Mother of Parliaments. So these cases are ongoing. And, and can you, uh, can so you define for, for us the murder charge? That, that goes back to a, a young man who was believed to have died during one of these orgies, is that correct? That's right. There's testimony uh, that's now being investigated uh, as to whether uh, uh, rent boys, I suppose, uh, the murder of rent boys by prominent politicians with people being named. But I think it's very important to emphasize the fact that uh, all the accusations tend to be on people who've died. It's as if the, uh, uh, the police and the Scotland Yard has its own headlines as regards covering up things in this country. Uh, it's so scandalous that even the government here, the Home Secretary Theresa May, has been criticizing the police federation uh, for the past year or so. And we know that Scotland Yard has been involved in cover-up after cover-up relating to so many different aspects of British civic, civic life. So uh, as regards current serving politicians, every time it, it uh, seems to touch uh, a serving British politician, it, the story seems to dwindle. And again, we talk about stories of uh, past ministers, particularly in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet uh, during the 1980s. Well, as the story grows, it becomes more and more apparent this is not just the story of underage girls. It is the story of a massive pedophilia ring involving some of the most powerful people in the world. Back to Jeffrey Epstein, because when police were investigating Epstein in 2008, they found an Amazon.com invoice for the purchase of sex slave books, such as Slavecraft, Roadmaps for Erotic Servitude, Principles, Skills, and Tools. Another called Training with Ms. Abernathy, a workbook for erotic slaves and their owners. And SM101, a realistic introduction. I spoke with Cambys Shambankari, who has spent years covering sex trafficking all around the world, and I asked him what this scandal is demonstrating about the power and the abuse of people from around the world. Uh, you know, the fact is, uh, regardless of, of what's happening right now with Princess War, uh, Andrew and Epstein, uh, you know, that's a long time that uh, a community of wealthy people, they take advantage of underage uh, children and girls especially. Uh, you know, uh, there was, uh, based on United States uh, government document, there were more than 600,000 cases of uh, uh, human trafficking that more than 60% of them, they were girls that they brought to United States. Uh, Thailand has a, one of the worst cases in this matter that uh, many rich people, they travel to Thailand to have sex with underage children. And uh, in this case, for, uh, 
for Miss Roberts' case, she was 17, but we are facing in Thailand with something like six years old or five years old kids that they have been used as a sex slaves. Well, and it's just, it just seems like this is, um, and as you pointed out, and I think you make a great point, that at the end of the day, um, a lot of the girls who are involved in this particular story, and that's not to minimize the abuse of them, uh, are much older, and yet there are very young children all around the world that this is happening to even as we're speaking. Yeah, that's true. But but what what is bothering me about this case is uh, blaming the victim. That that's that we we see a lot. You know how so? Uh, How are they blaming the victim? Uh, they they started to bullying the uh, this woman. When you say that, are you talking specifically about Alan Dershowitz, the attorney who's now been assigned to this case, now taking it exactly. on? Exactly. And she's, a, she's a, you know, uh, Miss Roberts is, is an example of many of those victims that they, they can't step forward. They can't talk about their abusers. They can't talk about what happened to them because uh, they are afraid. Well, that person who is now blaming the victims, as you heard there, according to Shambankari, is attorney Alan Dershowitz, who himself has now been accused of having sex with underage girls associated with Epstein. Writing in the Wall Street Journal law blog that he is the victim of an extortion conspiracy, Dershowitz is calling for the disbarment of the two lawyers who are representing the alleged victims. It's a story we'll continue to follow. Her lust for power is obscene. She'll do anything to take the White House. Her antics have already cost American lives, but wait until you see what she's up to now. You see, while Hillary's relationship with Goldman Sachs is bankrupting innocent Americans, her love affair with this shady organization is killing them. It doesn't matter if she's defeated in November. Hillary Clinton is already wreaking havoc on your personal health. Make no mistake, it will take years, decades to reverse the damage. In the meantime, scores of good, innocent people will suffer for her sins. In fact, Hillary's latest prank could rob you of your life savings, wreck your health, even put you in an early grave. And if you're over 55, Hillary's plot is a virtual death sentence, and it's already being carried out. According to the U.S. government's own records, Hillary's latest plot claims an American life every five minutes of every day all year long. Here's the short of it. Hillary plans to expand and expedite a process that puts you at risk. In fact, we already know that the results of this process are dangerous, even deadly. And if you think anyone's going to stop her, think again. You've seen her dodge and weave before Congress time and again. The best you can do, the only thing you can do, is take steps now to protect yourself and your loved ones. In the next few minutes, I'll reveal a corrupt political machine, the likes of which this country has never seen. When you see the collusion, the corruption, the heartache and ruined dreams, it will make you sick to your stomach. But please, don't turn away, because this information could save your life. In fact, I'm going to give you a specific seven-point plan to protect yourself from Hillary's insatiable lust for power and her unholy alliance with Big Pharma. This powerful seven-point plan will help take money out of Hillary's hands and help stop her bid for the White House. More importantly, it could save you and your loved ones from financial ruin and even a grisly death. Please understand, this is extremely time-sensitive. Powerful forces funded by at least three Clinton super PACs, including Priorities USA Action, would love to get this information banned. So please, watch now before it's too late. 
As you know, Hillary Clinton's shady deals go back decades. I don't have to remind you about Vince Foster or the travesty of Benghazi. And Hillary's latest scheme is far more deadly than anything she's ever orchestrated. This time, the victims are innocent Americans, folks just like you and your loved ones. You see, over the last few years, Hillary Clinton has woven herself into the very fabric of the pharmaceutical industry. While she doesn't have an official job title, you could accurately describe her as a hired gun, paid to teach Big Pharma everything she knows. And when it comes to fooling the American people, nobody knows more than Hillary Clinton. Think about it. The woman is under investigation by the FBI. She's been conning people for years, decades, and with every scam, her power grows more dangerous. Listen, Hillary Clinton is a chameleon, a master of deception, who can shapeshift with the best of them. Hillary shows people what they want to see. The National Review, a leading conservative publication, notes that Hillary adopts a different persona depending on who she's trying to con. When she's campaigning in Alabama, she uses her best southern drawl and dons down-home attire. When she's wooing the Wall Street elites, suddenly she's wearing sunglasses indoors and talks like a true New Yorker. And when she wants to hobnob with the Hollywood liberals, boom, she steps into the phone booth and emerges a real-life valley girl. Hillary is a master of disguise. She shows people exactly what they want to see, even if it's a total distortion of reality. Smoke and mirrors at its finest. Now, with that in mind, let me ask you, who has the skills to help Big Pharma disguise deadly poison as life-saving medicine? Who has the guile to convince the American people that the innocent-looking pill they take every night is safe, even though it's proven to increase risk of death by 530%? Who has the connections to make the U.S. government complicit in a deadly con game that makes Big Pharma rich while killing an innocent American every five minutes? Hillary Clinton, that's who. Make no mistake. Big Pharma is more than happy to pay a king's ransom for her expertise. If you think she got paid a lot to speak at Goldman Sachs, believe me when I tell you her Wall Street payday looks like minimum wage compared to what the bigwigs at Big Pharma fork over. For example, in June 2014, Hillary made a jaunt to sunny San Diego where she met with the biotech industry organization. Her compensation? $335,000 for one hour. On March 13, 2014, Hillary traveled to Orlando, Florida to talk with the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association. She was paid $225,000 for one hour. Also in March 2014, Hillary jetted to Manhattan, where she received $250,000 to share her ideas with drug, chemical, and associated technologies. On and on it goes. In October 2014, Hillary collected a quick $265,000 from the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. In February 2014, Hillary met with Novo Nordisk, the $130 billion manufacturer of Victoza, a blockbuster diabetes drug that's been linked to 300 deaths. Novo Nordisk paid Hillary $125,000 to impart her wisdom. What does Hillary Clinton have to say to Big Pharma that's so incredibly valuable? Well, we don't know for sure because she refuses to release transcripts. But it's safe to say Big Pharma wants to know all of Hillary's dirty tricks. It's not easy to sell deadly poison and call it medicine, yet that's exactly what Big Pharma is doing. Their ruthless game of smoke and mirrors claims an American life every five minutes. With Hillary's guidance, they're probably going to double sales, and you can bet 
Every time Big Pharma sells another pill, Mrs. Clinton smiles and rings the register. Remember, these are not just any pills. They are deadly drugs that claim an American life every five minutes. And with Hillary on board, these drugs are going to be even harder to spot. Listen, these drugs don't have poison labels on them. They're backed by the U.S. government. They appear safe and are used by more than 1 in 10 Americans every single day. In fact, chances are good that at least one of these killers is in your medicine cabinet right now, put there by the very authorities paid to protect you. And if you're thinking the FDA is going to help you, forget it. During the last five years alone, the FDA has collected $2.5 billion in payments from major drug companies, including Bristol-Myers, Merck, Eli Lilly, and Pfizer. In exchange for these payments, the FDA pushes drugs through the approval process, flooding the market with poisons that were known to have dangerous and even deadly side effects. And here's the worst part. While Big Pharma and the FDA push their deadly profit pills, a veil of secrecy is thrown over real cures that could relieve your pain, ease your suffering, even save your life. That's right. At this moment, incredible cures, bonafide miracles, are being hidden in an effort that keeps the Big Pharma, FDA, Clinton machine rolling. That leaves you with a very important choice. And your choice is anyone except Hillary Clinton. Good morning. I'm still reporting on the Clintons. Remember the September 7th Commander-in-Chief Forum where Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton appeared separately but back-to-back for 30 minutes each? According to an email forwarded to us late last night and originated from a Comcast email address, the technical crew for NBC, which produced the event, is now speaking out about what took place moments after Clinton walked off the set a massive profanity-laced tirade aimed at NBC's host, Matt Lauer. It turned out that Clinton had been fed all the questions for approval in advance of the forum. But then, after the approval process, Matt Lauer had a change of heart and decided he would start his questioning with an unapproved line concerning Clinton's use of an illegal private server for her sometimes classified work-related emails. Let me ask you something ahead of time that I'll ask Mr. Trump in a half an hour. To the best of your ability tonight, can we talk about your qualities and your qualifications to be Commander-in-Chief and not use this as an opportunity to attack Mr. Trump, all right? And I'll ask him the exact same thing. I think that's an exactly right way to proceed. Okay. It's a very important decision uh, for our country, and each of us should be presenting our experience, our expertise, and our plans to protect and defend the United States and our allies around the world. What is the most important characteristic that a commander-in-chief can possess? Steadiness. An absolute rock steadiness and mixed with strength to be able to make the hard decisions because I've had the unique experience of watching and working with several presidents. So judgment is a key. Temperament and judgment, yes. The word judgment has been used a lot around you, Secretary Mm -hmm. Clinton, over the last year and a half, and in particular concerning your use of your personal email Mm -hmm. and and server to communicate while you were Secretary of State. You said it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. You said you made not the best choice. Mm -hmm. You were communicating on highly sensitive topics. Why wasn't it more than a mistake? Why wasn't it disqualifying if you want to be Commander-in-Chief? Well, Matt, first of all, as I have said repeatedly, 
Uh, it was a mistake uh, to have a personal account. I would certainly not do it again. I make no excuses for it. Uh, it was something that should not have been done. But the real question is the handling of classified material, which is, I think, what the implication of your question was. And for all the viewers watching you tonight, I have a lot of experience dealing with classified material, starting when I was on the Senate Armed Services Committee, going into the four years of Secretary of State. Classified material has a header which says top secret, secret, confidential, nothing. And I will, I will repeat this, and this is verified in the report by the Department of Justice. None of the emails sent or received by me had such a header. Of Director their Comey also said this after reviewing all the information. He said there is evidence to support a conclusion that any reasonable person in Secretary Clinton's position should have known that an unclassified system was no place for that conversation. Well, Matt. I, I just respectfully point. According to a Comcast official, the parent company of NBC Universal, who apparently was quoting those on the set, when Matt posed the one legitimate question about the FBI investigation concerning her homemade server and the unsecured emails, we could see she was beginning to boil. According to an NBC associate producer of the forum, as soon as Clinton got off the set, she exploded. Hillary proceeded to pick up a full glass of water and throw it at the face of her assistant, and then the screaming started. She was in a full meltdown, and no one on her staff dared speak with her. She went kind of manic and did not have control over herself at that point. How these people work with this woman is amazing to me. She really didn't seem to care who heard any of it. So judgment is a key. Temperament and judgment, yes. You really had to see this to believe it. She came apart, literally unglued. She is the most foul-mouthed woman I've ever heard. And that voice, at screech level, awful. So judgment is a key. Temperament and judgment, yes. She screamed she'd get that effing Lauer fired for this. Referring to Donald Trump, Clinton said, if that effing bastard wins, we all hang from nooses. Lauer's finished, and if I lose, it's all on your heads for screwing this up. So crooked Hillary fears the gallows, eh? Interesting. So judgment is a key. Temperament and judgment, yes. Her dozen or more aides were visibly disturbed and tried to calm her down when she started shaking uncontrollably as she screamed to get an executive at Comcast, the parent company of NBC Universal, on the phone. Then two rather large aides grabbed her and helped her walk to her car. Matt Lauer was massively criticized for the rest of the week on air by the Clinton campaign and the rest of the MSM as having conducted an unfair and partisan attack on Clinton. According to the email, calls were made to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Huffington Post, and Twitter executives with orders to crush Matt Lauer. One staffer on the Clinton campaign told the NBC staff that they all fear Clinton's wrath and uncontrollable outbursts, and one described Hillary as an egotistical psychopath. Since Hillary does not allow any staff to have cell phones when she is in their presence, no footage is available. Interim DNC chairman Donna Brazile, the first black woman to hold the position, was singled out by Hillary during the rant. 
She screamed at Donna, I'm so sick of your face. You stare at the wall like a brain-dead buffalo while letting that effing lower get away with this. What are you good for, really? Get to work, janitoring this mess. Do I make myself clear? So judgment is a key. Temperament and judgment, yes. A female NBC executive said that Donna Brazil looked at Mrs. Clinton and never flinched, which seemed to enrage Hillary all the more. The executive continued, it was the most awful and terrible and racist display, such a profane meltdown I've ever witnessed from anyone and I will never forget it. So judgment is a key. Temperament and judgment, yes. That woman should never see the inside of the Oval Office, I can tell you that. She was unhinged and just continued to verbally abuse everyone. She was out of control. Why did Lauer ask his rogue question? According to sources close to Lauer, because the American people deserve an answer from the former Secretary of State. Now, having said all this, why aren't I 50 points ahead? Here's your problem. Someone set this thing to evil. I'm still reporting from Washington. Good day. So is Hillary Clinton sick? It's a fair question. When John McCain ran for president in 2008, the media hounded him until he released his medical records. McCain was shot down over Vietnam. He was injured, he was captured, he was tortured. I think liberals were being mean-spirited about it. They were trying to demean his heroism. But look, fair's fair. If someone wants to lead the free world, voters should know that he's physically and mentally fit. Which brings us to Hillary Clinton. I'm not just talking about those endless coughing fits. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Just one second here. I mean, when you're doing public speaking, it's easy for your throat to get dry. <clears throat> so you have a drink of water. But seriously, it's all the time with Clinton. And I've heard of taking a cough drop or even throat spray, but who takes a medical pill because they're coughing? <laughs> what kind of pill do you take when you're coughing? There's little weird things, like the fact that she always needs to be propped up on pillows when she sits. Once you notice it, you can't look away. She's always being propped up with pillows. She needs help standing or climbing stairs. It just doesn't seem normal. Or maybe it is normal for someone who is sick or weak. Everyone slips and trips from time to time. If you or I had a camera on us all the time, it would be easy to exaggerate a single incident, like tripping while boarding an airplane. But it's tough to exaggerate a concussion and a blood clot in your brain that sends you to the hospital. And that's exactly what happened to Hillary Clinton four years ago. Do you know how serious that injury was? She went back to work in arguably the second most important job in America, and she was still so banged up weeks later, her head was still so injured that she was seeing double. Do you see those strange glasses she was wearing? Do you see that weird prism in the lenses? That's called a Fresnel prism. It's to counter 
double vision. She was seeing double. Is that why she needs a handrail all the time? Is that why she needs to be helped up? How did she get that concussion in the first place? Did, did she fall and why? Did, did she have a seizure or something? I mean, what's this all about? Now, the Clinton spin doctors say that seizure there was just a joke. You know, Hillary Clinton, renowned for her sense of humor, was just having a little fun, a little pretend seizure in a media scrum, totally normal. She's always yucking it up like that. She's always such a practical joker, that Hillary. <laughs> really? I thought only Donald Trump did entertaining gags like that. Not someone who had a blood clot in their brain and a concussion and Fresnel glasses. She insists on sitting down whenever she can, either propped up with a pillow or on a stage with a stool nearby. In the Democratic debates against Bernie Sanders, where she had to stand for prolonged periods of time, she took extremely long breaks during commercials. Really weird. I mean, these were live nationally televised debates. And everyone was waiting for Hillary Clinton to come back. From where? From the bathroom? From some sort of medical treatment? Sorry. Who knows? Maybe this guy knows, always seen with her, but he's not Secret Service. You'd think he is, based on how close he stays to Clinton, but he's a paramedic. You can see by the badge he sometimes wears. He carries an injection device. Maybe it's an EpiPen, maybe it's an anti-seizure injector. Always just a few feet away from Hillary Clinton. And whenever she gets flustered and confused, and maybe she's gonna have another one of those seizures, he's immediately there, walks right up to her, and sometimes tells her exactly what words to say. advisor. He's not security. He's her paramedic, taking her through a stressful situation. She could have used his help here. And improve it and get the cost out of an upward spiral. Don't you think that's weird? Don't you think it at least warrants full disclosure, like John McCain did with his medical history? Here's a New York Times journalist saying that Google should actually suppress information about Hillary Clinton's health issues. That tells you what you already knew. The media party is just a wing of the Democratic Party. You can't trust the media, but also, look, if there's no bad news about her health, you don't need to suppress it, do you? If you have to suppress something, that means there is something to suppress. The lack of candor, the lack of disclosure, combined with the odd observations leads to speculation. And the mainstream media are not asking normal accountability questions. Are you at least curious about this? I mean, why does Hillary Clinton always wear the strangest pantsuits? I mean, not even normal pantsuits, but things that look like they're specifically tailored, always in a strange style. I mean, obviously, Clinton is a 69-year-old woman. She's not going to wear form-fitting clothes like, say, Melania Trump. But are her clothes deliberately tailored to conceal things underneath? Medical devices, a defibrillator, something like that. I don't know. 
I'm just speculating. But when the New York Times not only doesn't report on the truth, but demands that no other media be allowed to report on it either, you know it's a question at least worth asking. I mean, don't you think we ought to know if a U.S. presidential candidate is healthy, mentally and physically? Do you think being president is a stressful job? Maybe just a bit. Do you think negotiating with Vladimir Putin or the Iranians or the North Koreans is a little bit tiring and stressful? Who's going to be making the decisions, Clinton or that unnamed personal paramedic? No, you okay. Maybe we ought to know who he is and what his mandate is. Look, we know that Clinton gets easily confused. Don't take it from me. Take it from Huma Abedin, her personal advisor and closest aide. Here's an email that Clinton originally hid from the public that was released only after a court ordered her to. Check it out. Start from the bottom in this email chain. Huma Abedin, Clinton's closest aide, emails another aide and asks, have you been going over calls with her for tomorrow? And the second aide replies, she was in bed for a nap by the time I heard. Now, this email exchange was at 5 p.m. She's napping at 5 p.m. And then Huma Abedin writes back and says, very important to do that. She's often confused. Oh, oh, great. Now, this was three and a half years ago. She's often confused. Blood clot, concussion, Fresnel prism glasses, seizures, having naps at 5 p.m., a grown-up? needs to be told things by her aides because she's often confused. We're in the best of hands here, aren't we? Now look, Hillary Clinton has illegally deleted tens of thousands of emails that were the property of the U.S. government. It's obvious why. She's hiding her tracks for all the dirty deals and corrupt conversations she's had over the years, especially in regards to the corrupt Clinton family foundations, which have taken in hundreds of millions of dollars in donations while she was Secretary of State, while she's campaigning for president. And those donations have even come in from foreign governments like Saudi Arabia. They are literally sending her multi-million dollar bribes. It's not for charity. Less than 10% of Clinton Foundation money goes to charitable activities. It's all graft. But we were able to see some glimpses of some of her emails. As I just showed you, thousands of her emails have come to, uh, come to light through a public interest lawsuit filed against the State Department by a nonprofit group called Judicial Watch. Here's another one of those emails that Clinton tried to hide that Judicial Watch got. Start from the bottom of this email exchange. Now, this is from 2009. Clinton wrote, do you think we could get a plane for Westchester flight back tonight? It's going to rain all day, and I still don't feel great. So the idea of playing a guessing game with the shuttle is really burdensome on me. What do you think? Could be any time that works for the Air Force. So she was too sick, too frail, too tired, even to fly on a regular plane. She needed the Air Force to spend, send her a special plane. Now, this was in 2009. That was seven years ago. That was before her concussion, before her blood clot, before her coughing fits. How long has she been so sick and tired and needing naps, as Huma Abedin says, so easily confused? Here, let me show you some more. Here, this is an email from 2013. Hillary Clinton is about to meet the foreign minister of France, Laurent Fabius. So it's an important meeting. But look at the email. It's sent at about 2.20 in the afternoon on a Friday. Two in the afternoon. And Huma Abedin tells Clinton, reminder... Fabius at 3.30, take a nap. 
This was no joke. Clinton wrote back, we'll try. I'm sorry, what, what adult has naps at all, let alone at 2.20 p.m.? Naps? And it's such an important issue that her staff has to tell her to do it. They know something is wrong or something will be wrong if she doesn't have a nap. Now, I went to an archive of Clinton emails. Again, these are ones that a court ordered the State Department to disclose. They were hiding them. We still haven't seen tens of thousands of emails that Clinton deleted. But I just typed in the word sleep into a search engine of those emails. No big deal. Just the word sleep. I didn't even type in nap or sick or seizure or anything. Here's what I found. And these are just emails in random order. In December of 2012, this email. Hillary, I'm relieved to hear you're going back to work. Hope you are feeling well and got some sleep too. It's from Sid Blumenthal. Hope you hope you better. What, what was wrong? How long was she out of commission? Now the concussion in question was nearly three weeks before this note. How long was Clinton out? What actually happened to her? But look at her response on the same email. She wrote to a staffer. Did I already respond? Are, are you kidding me? Hillary Clinton didn't know if she had responded yet. She was confused. She was disoriented. Still, three weeks after the concussion. I mean, I guess she was well enough to type, but she was so confused. Maybe she needed a nap. And yes, look at the reply to her. She had already responded. Hillary Clinton couldn't remember what she was doing. Can you imagine her dealing with an operator like Vladimir Putin? Who would be in the room to whisper things like, did I answer already, or who is that man? Here's an email from 2011. Now, this is a gushing profile in Harper's Magazine about how great Hillary Clinton is, sent to her. But again, little signs of problems even then. This is from the article. She is also a champion napper. Reigns notes that in her cabin on her special air mission plane, Clinton can sleep through both takeoff and landing. I often sleep through both, yeah, she says. How? Because I'm so tired. I think I'm chronically exhausted. Chronically exhausted, eh? I love how that was phrased. She's a champion napper. It's such a good thing to be low energy. <laughs> Here's another one. Like I say, these naps and confusions go back to 2009, her first year in office, probably before that too. Here's one from mid-2012, before her concussion. Again, this is a loving story from the Associated Press that was sent to Hillary Clinton as a press clipping. She loves to read her fan mail. And the story was called, Hillary Clinton Breaks Travel Record. Another puff piece, but look at these sentences in the middle of the story. Even with a bed on the plane and her uncanny ability to sleep mid-flight, the grueling schedule can take its toll. Clinton suffered a rare coughing fit as she finished a speech before the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in Hanoi. And while she insisted that she would have preferred to stay all day, as birds sang in Kabul's presidential palace, she rushed away when Afghan President Hamid Karzai suggested taking additional questions. Arriving in Egypt this weekend after a flight from Cambodia, Clinton and her staff literally didn't know what time it was. A rare coughing fit, eh? Yeah, not so rare. Rushing away and avoiding questions. I like that line about an uncanny ability to have naps. 
in a plane with a full bed, is that an uncanny ability? That's a pretty positive way of spinning that she's exhausted all the time. I have an uncanny ability to have naps and take breaks. I'm a champion napper, <laughs> the media, eh? But it seems that Hillary Clinton herself knew there was a problem. Look at this email from back in 2010. She asks a staff member to print a bunch of articles for her. What are they all about? Sleep and weight loss from a thyroid website. Importance of sleep from a Harvard website. Metabolism and weight also from a Harvard website. What exactly is going on with her? Well, maybe like all of the rest of us, she's just curious about health. Just wanting to check up on some questions, no biggie. Except she says she's always exhausted. A champion napper sleeps all the time. And her staff tell her to sleep. I'm sorry, that's not normal. Not for someone in her position. And you think it's better or worse now, six years later. Well, here's a bizarre and shocking one from 2011. Sent to her by Jake Sullivan, her deputy chief of staff at the time. So it was obviously important. The subject line in the email is provigil. What on earth is that? Well, Sullivan explains. It's a drug used by the military to deal with sleepiness. Provigil is used to treat excessive sleepiness caused by narcolepsy or shift work sleep disorder, sleepiness during scheduled waking hours among people who work at night or on rotating shifts. It is also often prescribed to treat excessive sleepiness in patients with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and multiple sclerosis. Does Hillary Clinton have one of those diseases? Does she have narcolepsy? Does she have Parkinson's? What's wrong with her? And is it impacting her ability to make decisions? Well, let me show you one more document from 2011. Do you suffer from decision fatigue is the subject line sent to Clinton from her staff and she writes back, quote, wow, that is spooky descriptive. Really? What did it say that was so spooky that made Hillary Clinton say, wow? Why did her staff send it to her in the first place? It's a long article, so I'll just quote one key paragraph. Here, listen to this. Decision fatigue helps explain why ordinarily sensible people get angry at colleagues and families splurge on clothes, buy junk food at the supermarket, and can't resist the dealer's offer to rush-proof their new car. No matter how rational and high-minded you try to be, you can't make a decision after decision without paying a biological price. It's different from ordinary physical fatigue. You're not consciously aware of being tired, but you're low on mental energy. The more choices you make throughout the day, the harder each one becomes for your brain, and eventually it looks for shortcuts, usually in either of two very different ways. One shortcut is to become reckless, to act impulsively instead of expending the energy to first think through the consequences. Sure, tweet that photo, what could go wrong? The other shortcut is the ultimate energy saver, do nothing. Instead of agonizing over decisions, avoid any choice. Ducking a decision often creates bigger problems in the long run, but for the moment, it eases the mental strain, unquote. Look, being president is the most stressful job in the world. You're making decisions from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. You need energy, both physical and mental. You need to be able to make decisions in the morning and at night and sometimes in the middle of the night. Like say, for example, when terrorists attack the US consulate in Benghazi, you can't say you're just really tired and push pause. You can't have a nap. You have to make a decision. Look, I don't know. 
Maybe the coughing thing is just a cough. Maybe the weird clothing is just a personal style. Maybe she's not hiding any medical devices. Maybe that male paramedic is just a, an aide of some sort. I don't know. I do know she's acting pretty strange. For six years, she's been sleep-deprived, a champion napper, chronically exhausted in her own words. She's been researching medical conditions and exotic drugs. She had a concussion and a blood clot. She was seeing double. She didn't even know if she had written back to close friends. Her staff tells her to nap. Her staff says she's easily confused. This is an important issue that needs to be addressed before the election. What exactly is wrong with Hillary Clinton? And just as important, why won't the mainstream media ask basic questions? Questions they had no problem asking when it was a Republican named John McCain. For the Rebel.media, I'm Ezra Levant. Thanks for watching. Click here to never miss a Rebel update. Want even more of the Rebel? Well, click here to become a premium member. Did you hear about the Fed? No. What about the Fed? They announced another round of the quantitative easing. What does that mean? It means they are going to make large asset purchases via POMO. What does that mean? It means they are going to expand their balance sheet and buy treasuries. What does that mean? It means they are going to print a ton of money. So why do they call it the quantitative easing? Why don't they just call it the printing money? Because the printing money is the last refuge of failed economic empires and banana republics, and the Fed doesn't want to admit this is their only idea. So why do they want to print the money? Because they say we have the deflation, and the deflation is very bad. What is the deflation? The deflation is when prices of the things we buy go down. Isn't that good? Doesn't it mean the people can buy more of the stuff? Yes, but the Fed said this is bad, especially during the recession. So they think that during the recession, when the people have less money to buy the stuff, it is bad that the prices go down? Yes, the Fed would rather have the inflation. So why does the Fed think we have the deflation? Because the CPI said so. But aren't the food prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the gas prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the health care costs higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't tuition prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the taxes higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the subway fares higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the stock prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the bond prices higher than a year ago? Yes. So what is deflating right now? The only thing deflating that I can see is the Fed's credibility. Did they have a lot of credibility to start with? No. Why not? Because the Fed has been wrong about every major economic development in the past 20 years. You mean they didn't see the Internet stock bubble? No. In fact, they helped fuel the Internet stock bubble. And they didn't see the housing bubble? No, in fact, they helped cause the housing bubble. And they didn't see the subprime crisis? No, in fact, they told us subprime problems were contained right before the shit hit the fan and the Lehman went bankrupt. So has the Fed ever been right about anything? Let me see if I can think of anything. Nope, nothing. Who runs the Fed? The Fed is run by the Ben Bernanke. Does the Ben Bernanke have a lot of business experience? No, the Ben Bernanke has no business experience. Does the Ben Bernanke have a lot of policy experience? No, the Ben Bernanke has no policy experience. Has the Ben Bernanke ever run in an election? No, the Ben Bernanke has never run in an election. So what qualifies him to run the Fed? I don't know, maybe the fact that he has a nice beard.
but my plumber also has a nice beard, and I would not trust him to play God with the economy. No, although when you call the plumber to fix something that is broken, they usually fix it, not break it more. This is true, the plumber is clearly smarter than the Ben Bernanke. Well, that is why he became a plumber, and not an economist. How does the Fed execute the quantitative easing? They print the money, and then they buy the treasury bonds. Do they buy the treasury bonds from the treasury department? No, they buy the treasury bonds from the Goldman Sachs. You must be shitting me. No. So let me get this straight. If I want to buy the treasury bonds with my money, I can buy them directly from the treasury. Yes. And if you want to buy the treasury bonds with your money, you can buy them from the treasury. Right. But if the Ben Bernanke wants to buy the treasury bonds using the American people's money, he does not buy them from the treasury, he buys them from the Goldman Sachs? Exactly. And does the Goldman Sachs give them a good price? Of course not, they are the Goldman Sachs, they make their living ripping off the American people. But how is the Goldman Sachs able to do this? The Fed announces what it is going to buy, and when it is going to buy, before it does the trade. So the Goldman Sachs can front run the Fed, and give them the worst possible price on the Treasury bonds? Yes, exactly. And the Fed is okay with this blatant theft from the American people? Of course otherwise, the Fed would just buy the Treasury bonds directly from the Treasury Department. Who inside the Fed is responsible for the buying of the Treasury bonds? The buying of the Treasury bonds is conducted by the New York branch of the Federal Reserve. And who is in charge of the New York branch? The head of the New York branch is the William Dudley. And what did the William Dudley do before running the New York Fed? Before running the New York Fed, the William Dudley was a partner at the Goldman Sachs. So the guy in charge of the American people's money when dealing with the Goldman Sachs used to be a partner at the Goldman Sachs? Yes. And nobody has a problem with this? Apparently not. Is this an episode of The Twilight Zone? I don't think so. Are you sure? Pretty sure. So what you are telling me is that the Fed thinks prices are going down when in fact they are going up? Yep. And they think during the recession, with the high unemployment, it is better if the thing people need to buy cost more money. Correct. According to the Ben Bernanke, the inflation will create the jobs and improve the housing market. Has this ever been tried before? Yes, just last year the Fed tried the quantitative easing with $2 trillion. Did that create the jobs? No. Did it help the housing market? Not at all. Did it help anybody at all? Yes, it helped the Goldman Sachs. How much of the money are they printing now? $600 billion. So even though the first $2 trillion did not create the jobs or improve the housing market, the Fed decided to do another $600 billion anyway? Yes. Who put the Ben Bernanke in charge? The Ben Bernanke was first appointed by the President Bush, then he was reappointed by the President Obama. But wasn't the President Obama supposed to bring the change? Yes. How is putting in charge the same fool who has been wrong about everything, the change? Well, under the President Bush, the Ben Bernanke only blew up the American economy. Under the President Obama, he is working on blowing up the entire global economy. That does not sound like the change we can believe in. Definitely not. Who else supports the Ben Bernanke? Most economists around the world think the quantitative easing is very dangerous. Does anyone think it is a good idea? Yes, the people at the Goldman Sachs. Is this some kind of nightmare? No, it is very real. I want to bang my head against the wall. You should not do that. Why not? Because the health care is too expensive. But didn't the President Obama fix that? No, but that is the subject of a whole other video. Goodbye.
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. And I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Monday, November 7th, 2016. Good afternoon, Al. Hello, Melody. Well, it certainly has been an interesting day in the markets. We had shares on Wall Street. They all rallied. On the eve of the U.S. election, as Democrat nominee Hillary Clinton, her prospects brightened after the FBI said they're not going to press criminal charges against her over the use of a private email server. So U.S. stocks on today set for the biggest one-day percentage gain since March 1, and we're going to put that all into perspective for you. How much of a gain did they really have uh, with this new news? So it certainly did mark the uh, markets um, 
as far as both the paper markets and the gold markets. So we do have pressure on gold. Pressure on gold was down 22 bucks today. 22 bucks at $1,282. Silver was down 21 at 1830. It's really not a bad price for silver. And this is pretty much about where we were about a week ago, a little over a week ago. Both platinum and palladium were stronger. Platinum was up two at 1,003. And we have palladium up 26 up $656. I don't know why palladium would move 4% on the announcement uh, that there were no charges filed or will be filed against Clinton. So USDX today was stronger, 0.83, back at 97.72. Crude oil was up 87.44.94. And the paper markets today, you had the Dow up 371 points. 18,260. The NASDAQ was up 119 at 5,166. The S&P was up 46 at 2,031. 10-year yield up 0.05 at 1.83%. Euro was you know 110. Um, all the Japan, all the Asian markets and European markets were basically up 2%. Hong Kong was up just a little under 1%, so it all followed through uh, after the announcement was made yesterday. So, um, And again, it's confirmation uh, just how rigged these markets truly are. And it's just confirmation of how they really want Hillary Clinton and not Trump to be president uh, to win the election tomorrow. So... You can't become discouraged. And as I said, we're just back to where we were a week ago, a little over a week ago. So really not much has changed. However, the world's wealthiest people today became $37 billion richer today as stock markets rallied. Um, their combined net worth on the Bloomberg Billionaires Index rose 0.9% from Friday's close to $4.4 trillion. Global stocks and commodities, where did I want it to get down here? So the wealthy continue to get more wealthy. Billionaires uh, continue to become, you know, even more so. Jeff Bezos, Amazon founder, he led the surge with $2.7 billion. How'd you like to make two two $2.7 billion in a day? Not too shabby. <laughs> yeah, where do I sign up? Warren Buffett, the fourth richest person in the world, he added $1.5 billion. The Mexico's richest person also had a billion-dollar day, Carlos Slim. He added $2.2 billion. And um, so those are the... Uh, so the wealthy, get, the wealthy keep getting wealthier on the backs of the U.S., citizens. Bill Gates only added $700 million, Al. Mm, that'll show him. Yeah. But he's the world's richest person, so he only made $700 million, So. Well, obviously, he's not the world's smartest person if he only made $700 million. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, interesting day. The market's a 
nice time to take advantage of a little bit of the pullback we've seen today. And it doesn't change anything. You know, tomorrow will be the big day. Tomorrow will tell us how we can sort of plan how this is all going to unfold here in the very near future. How do you think it's going to unfold, Melody? I mean, technically, Hillary won't be assuming Hillary is elected. She's not taking office or Trump's not taking office until something like the middle of next month or middle of January, excuse me. So we've still got another two months of Barack Obama for our our political entertainment and uh, insight. And then we get to whoever it is that's next. Um, I don't, you know, people, to me, this is just nonsensical to think that either one of these parties, either one, either Clinton or Trump, is going to have a significant positive impact on the markets. No. Uh, to me, this is just fantasy. Um, I will concede the possibility that let's suppose Hillary is elected. All right, there'll be some jump in the markets. All right, but for how long? And how much of a jump are we going to have if, come December, the Federal Reserve decides to raise interest rates by a quarter of points? And they pretty much have to. Uh, they could put it off another month or two if that's what they wanted to do. But regardless, it's going to have to happen in the near future. And if the last year's rise is any indication, when they raise another quarter percent, the markets are going to tank. Price of gold is going to skyrocket. Well, maybe not skyrocket, but increase dramatically. Um, if you know, if, it, if if the whole situation parallels what happened a year ago. Uh, the idea that either one of these candidates can save the markets from what is mathematically inevitable strikes me as just bizarre. I don't know why people would believe that. You know, it's just, it's, it's it's surprising to me. Um, markets are well, in so much trouble. The economy is in so much trouble. The, the debt is so enormous. Uh, this thing just can't continue to function as as it has. It, and uh, and it won't be the fault of whoever's elected. And a lot of people try to blame whatever happens and say, well, it's Obama. Obama's the one that did it. Well, they didn't help things. But this goes back, you know, 40, 50, 70 years when they started to give us a fiat currency. This is, this is merely we are hitting the inevitable result of things that started all the way back you go back at least to 1971, where we finally went completely off the gold standard, and maybe to 1933 when we went off the domestic gold standard. And it's been creeping up and creeping up and creeping up for, what, 80 years or thereabouts? 75, 80 years, it's been creeping up on us, and we're finally going to get, and this is why the problem is so intractable. Mm -hmm. All right? It's not something that just happened last week or last month or last year. It's not just because Obama neglected to do one thing or another or because the Federal Reserve didn't, they did or they did not raise interest rates. That's not what this is about. This is the, this is the slow motion problem that was set in here back in 1933. And the consequences of that stupidity are now coming home to roost. 
and everybody's going to scream and shout, but it's precisely because it's been building for 70 years or more that this is not going to be resolved. There's no tinkering. Uh, we've been building this thing up like the, in the, like the snowflakes in the avalanche uh, metaphor until we have a really super high drift of snow, and this thing's going to break loose sooner or later. And when it does, look out below. What are you going to do with it? And I think we see that in today's response. It, it To me, it tells me how close we are at the system unraveling and that it doesn't matter that who is elected. We The problems are here. The fundamentals are there. Because you shouldn't have a market react the way it did if things were great. It wouldn't really matter. Sure, there'd be changes uh, with either uh, party, for, you know, because they, they each have their their agenda. But if the markets were as stable and this country and our economy was as stable as they'd like you to believe, you wouldn't have a 400 increase today just on the mention that Hillary's criminal activities are going to be ignored temporarily. So, again, this is confirmation of just of the, the, the volatility that you're going to face in the very near future. I mean, even when Trump was gaining, well, he still is, when the market was falling a little bit, you didn't see those drastic drops. It was a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there. It wasn't it was the, the trend was downward by nine days from when they started the investigation. But the response to today's market really should tell you how how unstable the system really is. Well, to me, I don't. I find it hard to believe that the market went up a couple hundred points because Hillary is going to beat the rap again. Um, <laughs> That's my point. I, I understand, and for me, I think the market moved as a function of manipulation rather than the general public has said, oh, hooray, Hillary has beat well, the rap again. absolutely, it's manipulated. That's the whole point. They manipulated, they rig it, so it did go up on that announcement. It was all coordinated. Well, it may be, it but I don't think... It was coordinated because people do care about their investment plans. You know, people. I think it's coordinated because they can't keep it below eighteen thousand for long. I think the coordination was they had to bounce this thing back above eighteen thousand in order to maintain some semblance of public confidence. To me, this is evidence that they're scared to death that the public will genuinely react to the market uh, and to the political system, and maybe, maybe cause a real avalanche. If Trump is elected, maybe that was a good way of looking at it, too. Maybe they are fearful of Trump being elected, so therefore they needed to rig it to go the upside. But I really believe they that they moved it higher, not because it was close to collapsing, but I, if they can change enough opinions in one day, taking this election to the edge, and they can change how many opinions, because people do care about their pension plans. People do care about the stock market. And they did Well, that's a concern have, for people, that's for sure, but it's not a concern for everybody. Know, 
I mean, people are worried about their pension plans for sure if they are retired, if they're getting close to retirement. But they really don't want Mr. Trump to be elected. I mean, this is just another, along with the, you know, the... Hmm. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't numbers. want either one of them to be elected. How about that, buddy? But they have the they had the payroll numbers on Friday. This was a, probably a little bit of a follow through. It was all timed. It was all timed, and well, I could not even imagine what made. How'd you like that one, Mr. Comey? You know, the day before the election, changing his view. Actually, two days. He did this on Sunday. He put the word out on Sunday, which is interesting to me, all by itself. They couldn't wait for Monday to release the uh, the the fact that they decided they they had to release this on what should have been one of Mr. Comey's days off. Uh, The whole thing just stinks and smells, and it's one of these things where you just sit back and there are parts of me that just. I mean, this is so painful. This is the most painful election I've ever seen. All right, I've been in favor of people and against people in the past, <laughs> but this one is the only one that's just, I have no idea. I'd like to know what the, what has happened to the number of heart attacks and strokes in this country over the course of the last 30 days. Is it just pretty much <laughs> on target or are people saying, I can't deal with it anymore? It's the big one. I'm, I'm checking out. Uh it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's astonishing. It's painful. Uh, it's bewildering. You can't get a straight answer. Who is ahead? Who's behind? I have heard people predicting landslides for Hillary, landslides for Trump. It's close. Trump's ahead. Hillary's ahead. I don't think, does anyone really know what's going on here? Does anyone have a real clue to what's really happening? I mean, some people are going to take credit. Say, wow, I predicted that Hillary would win by a landslide, and she did. You don't know what you're talking about. You may actually make the right prediction. I'll give you that. But this is like picking numbers on a roulette wheel and claiming you're a psychic because you got the right numbers a couple of times. All right? You just got lucky. Nobody knows. I Well, I guarantee I don't know what's going on for a fact. And I read this. I see these claims. Trump is gay. Trump, Trump is going to win this thing. He's going to have a landslide. Yay. No, Hillary's going to get the landslide. Boo. Oh, my God. It's a terrible situation. And you're supposed to have computers and all the rest of this. We should have high tech. We should have. They should be able to nail this thing down and tell us what's going on. And they can't which tells me that they won't, which tells me that this thing is fixed. The technology is available, and yet it's not reliable, at least not in terms of the information that reaches the people. The whole thing just, oh, my God, when will it end? Have the election today. Will somebody tell them, look, enough, enough. Let the people cast their vote between now and midnight and forget about having the election tomorrow. Let's get done with this thing. We have another 24 hours to go through, and when I lived on the West Coast, or longer, when I lived on the West Coast, the reports would start being released of the outcomes on the East Coast, which I don't think they should, because it does influence people's voting. Yeah, I know. And, and and they shouldn't. I know. And I remember even when it was Bush 
and Gore, Missouri. The voting offices were supposed to close at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. They kept them open till 10. And so you have all of these little things that, you know, you don't think it's much, but you add it all together and it does have impact. It has, it can have a major impact on the outcome. But so there's a lot of ways to rig elections. And, um, there's a lot of ways to rig the fatality rate this country. And one of them is make sure you put a TV set in all the hospital rooms and make people watch this, the election count tomorrow. I'm not going to watch it. I'm going to be surprised. (laughs) I'm going to be surprised and shocked and I won't believe any of us. Uh, it's an amazing, astonishing, just astonishing. If this was a movie, I would not believe it. All right? And yet here we are and we have to deal with it. All right, we also have to deal with a couple of commercials. Melody and I will be back on Financial Survival in just a moment. Please stay tuned. of tomorrow's election results. 
probably be able to sell a bunch of whatever it is you put on your hair to re- on your head to regrow hair. Be a big big market for that this week, probably. We're just talking about Elon Musk making some uh, comments just lately. Why don't you go ahead, Melanie? And- I thought it was an interesting comment. Um, he talks about the computers, intelligent machines, robots, where they're going to pretty much be the workforce of the future. More and more of these, more and more jobs are going to be replaced by technology. People will have less work to do, and ultimately, they will be sustained by payments from the government. He says there really won't be any other options. There's a pretty good chance we end up with a universal basic income or something like that due to automation. In a country with universal basic income, each individual gets a regular check from the government. Switzerland considered doing this this summer uh, with a basic income of 2,500 Swiss francs, which equals about $2,578 a month this past summer. Voters ultimately rejected the plan, but it did spark a, a global conversation. You even had Obama addressing the idea of a universal basic income in an interview with the director of MIT's Media Lab. Uh, whether universal income is the right model, is it going to be accepted by a broad base of people? And that'll be the debate uh, once these computers begin to start taking over. While society is slowly mulling, we used to call them mullets, while society is slowly mulling over the idea of a basic human income, technology is rapidly changing the global workforce. Uh, then it goes on, this article goes on, he talks about, you know, how the jobs will be changing, like semi-trailer trucks will be able to drive themselves. And though that won't become the status quo for a while, it means that there won't be a need for quite as many truck drivers, Musk says. Some drivers will transition to fleet operators responsible for monitoring the status of a fleet of trucks. Not only one individual truck. If a truck appears to be having issues, then the fleet operator would come in remotely and solve the problem. Um, so it's likely those truck drivers who no longer have a job might see, um, you know, they might be willing to accept this type of a society. But the optimistic Musk sees increased automation as an overall benefit to society, even an opportunity. People will have other things to do. <laughs> Yeah, like what? Like color. Get drunk, do drugs, and fornicate. Right? Or more Take naps. <laughs> people are taking naps. We won't even have to cook our own meals. And he uh, says certainly more leisure time. You betcha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. See, my question about all this is how universal is the universal payment? And what I mean by that, if we're going to set this thing up, and this is ultimately going to be part of the one world government, if that's where this is heading, Right. Are we going to set our universal payment according to the income standards of the United States? Or are we going to set them according to the income standards of India? Hmm? If if we're going to divide if we're going to divide up all the money equally among the people of the United States, well that's one thing and you can expect the people of the United States to say, "Okay, you mean Bill Gates and all these billionaires are going to throw their money in the pot?" And we're going to divide it up equally among all of us. There'll be a lot of people who go along with that. But what's going to happen if they say, "Wait a second, it's not just Bill Gates that's going to throw his money in the pot. You and I are going to throw the money in the pot because we are going to include the people in China and India in dividing up our cash." 
and we'll all have the same equal amount globally. And I guarantee you it's going to head in that direction. There's going to be a point in time when people are going to argue that there's no reason why the people in China shouldn't get as much money as the people in uh, Chicago or New York. And what that ultimately means is the standard of living for the West is going to be badly diminished. And whatever benefits and retirement, uh, I, whatever you thought about your standard of living, say, well, this is okay, this isn't bad, it's going to get worse. How are they going to say, we're going to have a universal check? Everybody gets the same, but except for the Chinese, they don't, they don't count. Are you going to make that fly? I don't think you can. Not in a one-world government. Um, if these universal checks were only universal within a particular nation, based on what that nation's productivity was, well, it would be more tolerable, and it may start that way, but inevitably it's going to go to the whole world is going to get the same amount of money, which means our standard of living is going to have to drop and get closer to what the standard of living, current standard of living is for China, maybe India. So, I think there could be a two-tier standard of living, particularly if you use his example about the truck drivers, you're going to have the, the fleet operator uh, who would be able to solve problems. The truck drivers will, will be the ones who get the government check. But if you have a job, you'll probably get paid more so and have a higher standard of living. It will be divided. And again, we often talk about all these pension plans, all these retirement accounts. We've talked about legislation that when this, when that money is taken and stolen from the people, which it will, it's just a matter of time, the government will come out with a program and say, here, let us take care of you. We'll make sure that you never lose your money again. Uh-huh. We have this special program for you. We have this annuity for you that will provide you with an income until you die or until you meet the death panels. Um, so that's how they'll introduce it. You know, I mean, already it's being discussed. Obama discussed it this summer. They tried to pass it in Switzerland. You know, you get these countries like Greece, you know, that, that's failing, that's fallen apart. People will welcome the government that comes to you with a hand, with a paycheck. Yeah, but where so does it get eat. the money? Well, well, I understand that they, ultimately they are, they they'll get the money to. from the robots. The robots will be the productive the means of production. Well, that means they will have purged the debt by then. They will have defaulted well, on the debt. They have to do that first. I understand that. Well, you and know, then it, that's when they'll come and come to the rescue, and they'll. Um, integrate these systems into various parts. I mean, heck, half the people are already getting checks from the government. It's not that far-fetched. No, none of this is, is that far-fetched. But the question, one of the questions is, are we, as a species, are we really equipped to just sit back and chill out Spend our time just uh, relaxing and watching TV. What's going to be on TV? Stories about people who used to have jobs back in the bad old days, or was it the good old days? Are we equipped to just sit on our butts and do nothing productive? 
And I'm not convinced that we are. I think we need to work. At least a lot of us need to work to give us a sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're not working, a lot of people just they, they fold up emotionally, psychologically, and they just prepare to die. Uh, well, you're working. You're also thinking of a group of people, the baby boomers, who yeah, who believe that way and think that way. But look at look at the young people anymore. And there will be certain jobs for them. There'll be jobs where they, you know, will be able to control certain things and, and still provide that. But we've been conditioned over a period of these kids are being conditioned for a lower standard of living. They've already been conditioned to uh, accept certain things as they're, I mean, they go through college and they can't even get jobs. So, no, I, I think it's the conditioning that has happened, and I don't no, think I don't, doubt that I don't there's think hope working, there. There's the both idea conditioning working, and nature. Yeah, the idea of working is not the same as it was uh, to to provide self worth. I mean, heck, look at us. You know, heck, you know, you can lose a football game in school and still get a trophy. You know, there's so. But but it's a cheap trophy, Melody. And it's not, it might be shiny, but it's not really gold plated. So my point is they're not using work as, work is not being a. I get that. I get that. And it's just interesting to me. I mean, the world may be changing in ways that, you know, just contrary to what I've seen and and thought I understood for the last 71 years, you know, a sort of thing where you, is this possible? Can this work? I don't really know. I, I don't know. We'll watch and see. I mean, if it, I said, can I just sit back and relax and do nothing? Well, there's I'm not a... sure that I can. Other people may be able to, though. And if so, the world will belong to the to those people that are naturally best able to survive without working. Well, my heavens, look at what they provide for entertainment anymore. Look what they consider as entertainment. As long as there's a, you know, a game that you can play or. You know, some sort of Netflix that you can watch, some sort of reality program that you can watch. I mean, it's... it's we have a great deal of entertainment as an alternative to education. We want to be entertained rather than educated, and that's a great flaw. I mean, it's human nature, but nevertheless, it's a terrible flaw. It's part of the reason we're in the trouble we're in right now. We have spent our lives looking for entertainment rather than education. We would have, if the time we spent watching all these idiotic programs on TV, if we had spent that time educating ourselves, we might not have been as vulnerable to economic disruptions as we are right now. We might not have allowed this country to go down a path that is seemingly just, not just ill-advised, irrational, suicidal. Um... Maybe we would have had brains enough if we spent a little more time on education and less time on entertainment. But here we are. And even if working is desired, there's not going to be any jobs. Well, there might be, but I mean, what will the job? Not for the mass, like not for the mass population, world? not for the no. general populace out there. And when you're talking about you're two different You're going to have to be very specialized. Checks. You're talking about two different sets of checks. One, universal payment, same rate for everybody maybe 80% of the population, maybe 90% of the population, and then a top 10% that actually gets a paycheck that reflects their work. 
kind of sounds like I, Obamacare, doesn't it? Well, I guess. I don't know. It sounds like Brave New World to me. and uh, It sounds like a bunch of things. But then among that 10%, they'll start arguing, well, I'm doing more work than Johnson is over here, so I should get more. I should get twice as much as Johnson okay, gets because so I'm doing twice as People will be thankful. They will be thankful. It's kind of like Obama is a system no, that they no, will use. No. People will oh. be thankful. Where did you get a silly idea like that, Melody? Haven't you paid any attention That's why to the of us. People feel fear and they feel greed. They're not worried about being thankful. They're either fearful or greedy. In the brave new world, they'll be thankful. That they, they they'll be been, drugged. In Aldous Huxley's version, everybody got drugged in order to cope with the fact that their lives were That's already dangerous. happened. That's already happened. We've already well, not to me, Melody. That's my problem. It's one of my problems. I've, I've said it for a long time. I feel like the only guy in the nut house who's not getting any meds and makes it, you know, if I had meds like the rest of the people do, I would be a lot more mellow, Melody. Mm. But when you got to deal with this stuff straight up, without benefit of drugs and alcohol, it puts a strain on your body. I understand. Especially this election. I mean, this election, if there's ever been one that was that could drive a man to drink, this should be that this is the one. You can get through this election without drinking, you're saved. Your alcoholism is cured. But anyway, so I thought that was sort of interesting. Not only do we have universal health care, we will now have a universal basic income. Brave new world in which we face. Brave new world. One more thing I wanted to just mention on the election, then we can move on. We're heading into a break in Boston today. It's truly, this election really, (laughs) it's just, Baffles me the way people are showing their true colors. No matter what side, well, particularly the other side, they're really being exposed to how evil they truly are. And in Boston, there was graffiti that was found. And they just kind of, they say it's troubling, but they just kind of laugh at us, probably a college kid, thinking that it's the proper thing to say at this point in time. But basically, the graffiti says, kill your local Trump supporter. Now, to me, (laughs) that's a little more than just someone, you know, feeling their oats a little bit. And it's just... Another sign of where we are at. Another sign of where our government is at. Yeah. And that's one of the most annoying things about all of this. The indictments that are at least the charges that are at least alleged against Hillary. They are numerous. They are substantial. We can debate whether they're true or false. But if they're true, it's not about Hillary. It's about a whole governmental system that is corrupt from top to bottom. And Hillary, if the charges are true, she should have been jailed 20 years ago. And the reason she she wasn't is because the government was corrupt then. They let her go, and they've let her go, and they've let her go, and they've let her go. That's, you know, this is this is like some spoiled brat in some regards. This isn't just a function of the spoiled brat. It's also a function of the parents that let the brat get away with murder, figuratively speaking. It is an indictment of the whole government. I've listened, I've listened to some, I don't even know who it is. You may have seen this. 
conspiracy theory explaining that there's a coup that's going on, that the Clintons tried to implement a silent coup over the Internet. And then the intelligence community of this country introduced, caused, a, implemented a silent counter-coup against the Clinton crime family. How the what they're telling us is the criminals is the, and they're telling us that the the Clinton Foundation that those are the bad guys. Well, they may be, but they are not all alone. They're trying to the intelligence community. As I listen to that program, that video, they're saying, "Oh, it's the Clinton fault of the Clinton Foundation." No, it's not. It's the fault of government that is corrupt. Barack Obama is corrupt. Joe Biden is corrupt. The the Supreme Court is corrupt, the Congress, the Senate, they're all in on it. They all know this is going on. They didn't do anything to stop it. And now we say, oh, my gosh, this is such a surprise. Hillary is so evil. Well, she probably is. But she couldn't, you know, she would not have achieved what she's achieved and done what she's done, except that everybody else in government looked the other way, which means they are corrupt from top to bottom. We're going to take a break for more commercials. Melody and I will be back in a moment. Please stay tuned to Financial Survival. just defended yourself with a gun. The police are called and you're potentially involved in a homicide, but it was self-defense. At this point, you are not in your right mind. No one ever is when they are in fear for their life and defend themselves. Anything you say can and will be used in a court of law, both civilly and criminally. Fortunately, you have selfdefensefund.com. We are the National Association for Legal Gun Defense, and we protect our members nationally in all 50 states, up to $1 million per incident per member. Let us do the talking for you and visit selfdefensefund.com. Any weapon, any state, any time. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
Cedarstrom on financial survival, and as the program began to, had to go on the air again, uh, the commercials were ending, and Melody is hyperventilating over something. I don't know if she's going to tell us or she's not going to tell us, but <laughs> what is, what's the OMGs all about, Melody? That didn't go out on the air. No, it didn't go out on the air, but I heard it. Well, you didn't have to announce it to everyone. Well, but what's next, Al? Well, I guess you're not going to tell us whatever it was, huh? Um, there's something we talked a little about, touched on Greece a little bit earlier in the program. There's an article from Bloomberg, and the headline is, Euro Area Signals No Significant Gret, uh, Greek Debt Relief for a Year. All right? Now, Greece is bankrupt. Two years ago, Zyprus was elected Prime Minister of Greece, and I don't remember the name of the man who was elected Minister of Finance, but they admitted they were bankrupt. Okay? All they wanted to do was just say, wife, sorry about that, we're bankrupt, we can't pay, let's just get done with it and, and move on with our lives. That was basically their program. Huh? Well, they were prevented. They were persuaded. They were pressured. I don't know what happened to them, but the, the Greeks are still caught in a situation where they are deeply indebted, and yet they're not filing bankruptcy, which is the natural thing to do. And the article says Euro Area Finance Minister signaled they may not give a commitment on a significant debt on significant debt relief for Greece before next year's German elections, dealing a further blow to embattled Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. They want debt relief. They want the debt canceled significantly. It's already been canceled by half. They want it canceled by at least another half. That's what the Greeks want. All right? And they, they're they being stopped, however, because the finance ministers don't want any more debt relief for Greece because it will adversely impact on Angela Merkel's re-election to the, uh, as, as German prime minister. <clears throat> so... The decision, part of the point here, is this, this is a political process, a political determination. It's not financial. It's not about whether Greece can pay, can't pay. It's not about the size of the debt. It's about politics. In fact, they go on, they say, as the Euro region's finance chiefs met in Brussels on Monday, Germany's Wolfgang Schäuble said the officials pouring cold water on Greek hopes for a concrete pledge as early as next month, on lowering the country's debt burden in 2018. With government determined to stop Greece uh, becoming an issue in election campaigns in the Netherlands, France, and Germany next year, their stance may push back the decision on easing the repayment terms of the, on the bailout loans by another year. The euro area has already agreed to measure uh, to measures to shield Greece from increases in interest rates. But they won't discuss any further concessions until the current assessment out of its bailout condition has been completed. Greece's mount, uh, mount, debt mountain is still more than 170% of its economic output, even after imposing more than 100 billion euros in losses in private sectors lenders in 2011. All right, the biggest write-off in history. Now, while the euro area agreed in May that it looked to look for ways to chip away at the debt burden, they have made little progress. Washington-based International Monetary Fund has insisted Greece's euro area creditors must agree on concrete 
and quantified relief, that means debt, cut the debt, before it will extend any more loans to the bloc's most indebted member. While the institution acknowledges that a nominal haircut uh, is implausible, the haircut is a reduction. People, Greece owes $100 million, the haircut are $100 billion. That means that Greece will, the creditors will agree to take a $50 billion haircut. They'll lose 50 of the 100 billion that they're owed, they're still owed, they write that off, and then Greece says, oh, but we promised to pay the other, the remaining 50 billion. Well, Greece probably would never pay it, no matter what happens. But the reason I bring this up is because Greece illustrates an idea that I've been talking about on the program here for the last, I don't know, a couple of months. And it's the observation that the debt is too great to be repaid. First point. Debt's too great to be repaid. Therefore, it's not going to be repaid. I've been saying that for years. But more recently, what I have appreciated is that the second part of this problem is that if we cancel the debt, we cancel the correlative paper assets. For example, the federal government, the United States, owes $20 trillion. We could cancel a debt. But we can't do it without also canceling the value of $20 trillion in paper assets that correspond to the, what's owed by the government. If we wipe out $20 trillion in U.S. bonds, it's going to collapse the whole U.S. and global economy. And the point, then, is we're caught in a situation where we can't pay the debts too big to be repaid, but we can't cancel the debt either because if we do, we wipe out the correlative paper assets. I think Greece, the situation with Greece, is an illustration of that, that two-part formula that I've been trying to explain to people. But they won't let Greece just wanted to file for bankruptcy. Hey, let us file for bankruptcy. Sorry, we screwed up. Can't pay the debt. Sorry about that. And then we'll file for bankruptcy. Debt gets wiped out. And we go back to, we begin our lives again, and we start building up our whatever wealth and prosperity we were able to were able to achieve. That's bankruptcy. Greece can't pay the debt. The debt's too big. They've already written off half of it. They want to write off more. They can't pay the debt, but they're not being allowed to cancel the debt with bankruptcy. Why? If they do, it wipes out paper and debt instruments that are being used as collateral in banks under fractional reserve banking to lend out if Greece owes if Greece owes $100 billion, say they did, that $100 billion, somewhere around those $100 billion in Greek bonds are probably being used as collateral in European banks. We're under fractional reserve banking over there. They can lend up to 23 times the face value of the collateral in their, in their vault. If the $100 billion in Greek bonds, and we're only speculating. I'm only pulling that number out of a hat. I'm not saying that's what they owe. I don't know what they owe. But if the hundred billion resulted in a hundred billion in debt, resulted in a hundred billion in in paper debt instruments that were being kept in banks around Europe, and they were used as collateral to justify loans at a rate of twenty three to one, they could, in theory, they could be running. There could be two. $0.3 trillion 
and loans that are out there in the European economies right now. And if Greece has says, sorry, we're bankrupt, those loans might have to be all called in. This fractional reserve system works wonderfully well when we are when the economy is growing and everything is cool and oh gee, isn't this great? We can magnify with fractional reserve banking. In the, in the United States, you put a million dollars in the bank. In theory, the bank can lend nine million dollars. They can use that nine, that one million as collateral to justify lending nine million. You can stimulate the economy that way. But when the economy starts going south, that nine to one ratio starts to work against you rather than for you. And if something happens to the collateral that's in the bank and it becomes worthless, they have to pull the million dollars in the bank turns out to be worthless. They may have to pull in $9 million in loans that are supporting people's cars and homes and shopping centers and flat screen TVs. So they can't let you off the hook. We can't cancel the debt and we can't pay the debt. And I look at that and I don't know what is the third alternative. What is the third alternative? If we can't pay the debt and we can't cancel the debt, what are we going to do about the debt? And I don't know. And the only thing I can imagine is there's got to be some sort of a catastrophic failure where all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you read the newspaper or look on the Internet and say, oh, my gosh, the whole thing blew up last night about 4.15 in the morning. And the debt's gone, but so are the paper assets, and the banks are wiped out, and God knows what's going to happen after that. So here we are, and to me, this is the significance of the Greek problem. They are, they, they, they can't pay the debt, and they aren't being allowed to just file for bankruptcy, which is all they wanted to do when Zipras and the finance minister were first elected two years ago. Just declare for bankruptcy and be done with it. Can't. Why? We have a debt-based monetary system. You could do it if it was an asset-based monetary system. But because we have a debt-based monetary system, you can't write off the debt without writing off the correlative paper assets. In in an asset-based monetary system, if I go bankrupt and we have a currency, a money that is based on tangible gold, an asset rather than a debt, based on assets, gold, silver, if I go debt, if I go broke and I file for bankruptcy, all right, I lose my gold, I lose my silver, too bad for me. But somebody's still gets it. Somebody's got that gold and silver. That gold and silver is still there in the economy, and it's, it's net, because it's not removed from the economy, my bankruptcy, my personal bankruptcy may, might be a personal tragedy, but it doesn't do terrible damage to the economy. But if we have a debt-based monetary system and I file for bankruptcy, I wipe out the, the currency, the, the, the monetary wealth of the system. It doesn't just move from me to my creditors. It disappears. If I can't pay my debt, that amount of debt, the, the correlative amount of paper assets is wiped out. It's vaporized. It's gone. And the system can't withstand it. So... I don't know that this is really, I don't know that's what I've tried to explain here, whether that's very clear or not. I don't know that it's, uh, that that's what's really going on in Greece. But it is consistent with the idea we can't pay the debt and we can't cancel the debt. So what are we going to do? 
And the only really the only addition, the only ex- alternative we have at the moment is to try kicking the can down the road, around a little further, a little further into the future, so we can postpone the inevitable. And the inevitable is some kind of a major catastrophe, a major collapse, where we have to admit the debt-based monetary system doesn't work, the paper debt instruments are worthless, and God help those who don't have any gold or silver because they're going to be in a terror, they're going to be in a world of and Melody. with the health care, affordable health care, everyone, premiums I'm hearing all across the country are jumping 40, 50, 60 percent. I got some numbers in just late this afternoon. The government spent $936 billion on health care programs, including Medicare, Medicaid, and subsidies related to the Affordable Care Act. They now spend more on federal health care programs than Social Security. The federal health care programs outpace spending on Social Security. So they spent $936 billion on health programs. Social Security is $882 billion. So they can't blame us baby boomers anymore on Social Security for breaking the system. But again, as long as this continues, these programs will grow and grow. And this is just an example of how we get to that one-payer income that comes from the government. So this is... This will bust. It's going to break. And because it's, I'm sorry, folks, the taxpayers don't have the money to pay this. Oh. And that's where it comes from. So every time you feel good about someone getting insurance for a couple bucks, just remember, if you're a taxpayer, you're paying for it. And uh, these, these programs are just going to continue it's to grow. It's not even just that you're paying for it. Your children and your grandchildren will pay for it because right now it's being purchased with borrowed money. And we'll leave the debt for the next generation. Let them pay for it. <laughs> Those silly little kids, they don't even know that we're putting them into poverty right now. While they're going to grade school and high school, we're putting them into poverty. And they don't have brains enough to understand it, but that's their tough luck. We'll just leave them to to bear the burden, you know, 10 years, 15, 20 years from now. And I really didn't know that the U.S. was 26th in, in average lifespan. I thought we were a little bit higher than that. But, uh, you know, so how good is our health care compared to other advanced countries? We spend well, more uh, on health care. In terms of profit. In terms of more, profit. Yeah. We spend more on health care than any other country, and yet we rank 26th. An average lifespan of just over 78 years. Mm-hmm. Well, what can we tell you, folks? Uh, we live in interesting times, and they're going to be more interesting. It's not going to cool off after this election. Tuesday, it's going to be a relief to all of us, at least to me, and I think probably everybody. We're going to say, oh, my God, thank God that election's over. But the problems aren't over. No. And the problems are just beginning. Uh, we're just beginning to see these problems manifest in a way that people finally say, how the heck did that happen? And we're going to live in interesting times probably for the balance of your life and mine. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedars. I want to thank all of you for listening. We will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Todd, the producer. Bye-bye.
I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. Um, thanks for joining us here on Herb Talk Live. We like to empower you. That's what we're going to do. Magical engineer Frank and I have a great show. Thanks for joining us on the American Voice Radio Network. We are going to be talking about the vac new vaccine studies. Well, they're not really new, but they're new to you because they've kind of been hid from you. And so we're going to talk about that regarding especially your flu shots. I know we've talked about, I know you're probably hear, tired of hearing about this stuff, but this is real important stuff because for the first time, well, I don't want to give it away. For the first time, they actually did some statistical comparisons. So we're going to get into it. Uh, also, uh, we're going to talk about um, what virologists are saying, and those are your virus experts. And also, we'll see, we might have to do an annual checkup, you know, to see how we're doing out there, if we're status ready for whatever may come. We'll see how the hour rolls. And we do have a quack report. But before we get on all that great stuff, big salute, big salute and semper fi to our righteous men and women in uniform. I am lifting them up in prayer and I hope you are too. And I'm seeking the Lord's face. And I'm minding the time because it grows short, you know. And uh, I'm praying for God's hand to be on this country because we need God's help. So I have my devotional today. And let's see. Oh, my goodness. What day is it? Is it already the – oh, it's the third. Okay, I'm already ahead on the fourth. See, I'm ahead of myself here. All right. So here we go with the devotional, and it goes something like this. Every time something thwarts your plans or desires – Use that as a reminder to communicate with me. This practice has several benefits. The first is obvious. You know, talking with me blesses you, strengthens you, strengthens our relationship. Another benefit is that disappointments, instead of dragging you down, or are going to transform you into opportunities of good. So this transformation removes the sting from the difficult circumstances, making it possible to be joyful in the midst of adversity. Yeah, that's God for you. Making lemonade out of lemons, right? It goes on to say, begin by practicing this discipline in all the little disappointments of daily life. It's often these minor setbacks that draw you away from my presence. And when you refrain, when you reframe your setbacks as opportunities, then you find that you gain much more than you've lost. And it's only after this training that you can accept major losses as in a positive way. And it's possible to attain the perspective of the Apostle Paul who wrote, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, I consider everything I once treasured to be insignificant and rubbish. Oh, yeah. It's all going to burn, right, eventually. So we need to keep that perspective and what's important. And, you know, what's important is finding salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And mind the time, because that is the way. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. All right, first up in the quack, or what do we have? Um, well, this is upsetting. 
since we're talking about vaccines tonight, uh, Syrian children uh, are dead after being injected with tainted measles vaccine. Um, the international organizations are supposed to, you know, help children, but they have this immunization program and they administered these vaccines through the World Health Organization. And uh, the reports are that three dozen kids died after they got vaccinated. Uh, the report is from uh, the CRAS files as 36 children died died uh, after they were injected with the measles vaccine uh, under the UN-sponsored program. Uh, so officials have suspended the vaccine program as they investigate. Um, they, they, you know, they don't know if the vaccines had gone bad, if they were sabotaged, or what the deal is. But um, we have 36 kids that paid the price. So there you go. All right, moving along in the quack report. Um, here's a study on nurses, you know, whether they're uh, attire called scrubs, um, transfers bacteria in the hospital, you know, the, especially the antibiotic-resistant superbugs. So the U.S. Center for Disease Control uh, did a study um, on antibiotic-resistant superbugs that are transmitted easily within hospital environments, and they are often through nurses' clothing and uh, and a. Uh, Big part of it was the patient bed rails. Oh, well, everybody's touching those. The researchers looked at 167 intensive care units and patients who were treated by 40 nurses uh, in three separate 12-hour shifts. All the nurses involved in the study cared for just two or sometimes more patients per shift and used new scrubs for each shift. Researchers took cultures twice a day from the nurses' clothing and from patients and from the patient's room. And what they found is 22 or 18% of the transmissions are from the same strain of bacteria. Well, it circulates around. So let's see, 27% uh, uh, of the bacteria was from patient to the nurse, 6% were from the room to the nurse, and 10% was from the patient to the room. So uh, after they were testing the bed rails, the, the beds, the supply carts, all this stuff, they said that a lot of it gets, uh, the strains get passed around by the nurses' scrubs, the, the, the clothing, the nurses. So uh, bacteria like staph, uh, pneumococcal pneumonia, and so forth, um, which, you know, tend to be now more antibiotic resistant. So, yeah, hospitals, germy, 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 germy. I still work in one. Well, intensive care, too. All right, last but not least in the quack report, um, here's a question. We're America. We're supposed to be in this great economic recovery. How come it's producing so many hungry Americans? According to this report, 49 million Americans are on national uh, welfare, uh, food stamps, government assistance. Um, according to the National Blaze, this Obama economy, one in six Americans is going to bed hungry every night. Mm-hmm. So how can such a country as ours and such a great economic recovery have 49 million Americans and one in six of them uh, hungry? 49 million Americans on assistance and one in six go to bed hungry every night. Well, I have it. One word, socialism. Yeah, redistributing the wealth. Sort of like, you know. I can't go into it. I, I don't want to get political. This is an herb show. <laughs> and
And that wraps the quack report. engineer frank has a good question he goes how come everybody is so fat and yet they go to bed hungry not everybody's fat but we do have obesity issues but you know people are eating the wrong things got a lot of empty calories and uh, they just have metabolic x syndrome and um, there's a lot of factors that go into that frank and that's for another show i think all right we're going to be talking about the vaccine studies and some of the common health problems um this is european studies uh these aren't american um there's one american but anyway you're going to see what i mean in a minute uh more information is really coming out on the residual effects of vaccines and not just the childhood vaccines you know the dbt and mmr stuff you want to keep in mind there's also that push, you know, we've talked about the push to make new requirements for adults to get regularly vaccinated with about a minimum of 13 vaccines, boosters and whatever. However, research from Germany and New Zealand have uh, showed some interesting findings, such as common health conditions are more prevalent in the vaccinated individuals than the non-vaccinated. So we're going to take a look at this new information and see how we can protect ourselves and, you know, prepare. Okay, so first, let's look at some U.S. statistics. The National Vaccine Information Center, as you know, has compiled a lot of detailed information and detailed studies around the world on health effects of vaccines. But in the U.S. alone, they say um, that vaccinated children are at risk of the following health problems. Uh, one in 45 develops autism. One in six has learning disabilities. One in nine has asthma. One in 10 has attention deficit disorder. One in 12 has depression or other behavioral disorders. And one in 400 develops diabetes, chronic inflammatory disorders, or immune system, skin, and brain inflammation and disorders. Wow. So according to Health Impact News, the CDC admits it's never, never conducted research on the health of vaccinated children versus unvaccinated children. Well, why would they want to do that, right? Now, what are they afraid of? Uh, I can tell you, profits, losing them. Uh, so, however, other countries are actually doing these studies. They're checking. They're doing some really good studies. I mean, they're doing really good following the book guidelines on how you conduct good studies, and but they're not happening in the U.S. All right, so let's talk about one of them. One of them is the German study. So in a, in uh, the German uh, KIGS health study, that's K-I-G-G-S, in their study, it assessed information that they collected from 2003 to 2006 on children and adolescents and they compared the health conditions of those who were and who were not vaccinated. So what they reported is that those who are vaccinated are at a greater risk of, the, of developing the following health conditions. Okay. Uh, diabetes by 0.20%. Uh, autism by 1.10%. Uh, 
thyroid by 1.70%, migraine headaches by 2.50%, epilepsy and seizure by 3.60%, scoliosis by 5.30%, autoimmune disorders by 7.00%, hyperactivity by 7.90%, hay fever by 10.70%, uh, odious media, which are ear infections, by 11%, herpes by 12.80%, neurodermatitis, which is brain inflammation like encephalitis, 13.20%, sinusitis, 15%, asthma or chronic bronchitis, 18%, and allergies, 22.9%. So the, this was a large, long-term study, and they, they called it the Salzberger study, and it looked at children from 15,000 mothers, okay, from 1990 to 1996, and what they did is they followed them after they were given childhood vaccines like the DPT, which is the diphtheria, tetanus, and a whooping cough. Um, and found the death rate of the vaccinated children was double compared to the unvaccinated children. So the death rate for those that were vaccinated was 10.5%, unvaccinated 4.7%. Uh, here's a quote from Philip Inca. He's an MD over there. He says, in my medical career, I've treated vaccinated and unvaccinated children, and the unvaccinated children are far healthier than the vaccinated ones, end of quote. All right, that was the German study. So it makes sense because, you know, you've got an uptick in all those conditions since vaccines have uh, been developed and put into use. All right, now let's look at the New Zealand study. Now, the New Zealand study was from 1992, but you haven't heard about it. Uh, and it showed that vaccinated children are more prone to chronic inflammatory type diseases and behavioral problems than the unvaccinated. Okay, so in the New Zealand uh, study, uh, the study involved 254 children and 133 children were vaccinated and 121 remain unvaccinated. Okay, so comparing those two groups, when it came to asthma, the vaccinated had a um, 15% risk rate of asthma, unvaccinated 3%. Um, the eczema and allergic um, uh, inflammatory rashes that you can get, you know, they have all kinds of conditions for dermatitis now. But vaccinated kids, 32% risk, unvaccinated 13%. Uh, chronic ear infections, 20% for the vaccinated, 7% unvaccinated. Recurrent tonsillitis, 8% for the vaccinated, 2% for the unvaccinated. Shortness of breath, sudden infant death syndrome, 7% vaccinated, 2% unvaccinated. And hyperactivity, 8% if you're vaccinated and 1% if you're not. I don't know if you know this, but whatever they're putting in these vaccines now, kids aren't sleeping, okay? Um, okay, my, my oldest is in his 20s, but, you know, I had three kids, and my kids were sleeping through the night by four months old, 
four months. We've got toddlers, two and three years old. They get up every few hours. They're not sleeping. Hmm. What's with that, right? All right. I want to look at the Hong Kong study. Um, now, this is an interesting study. Health Impact News reports that researchers in Hong Kong have looked at the differences between children of ages 6 to 15 uh, vaccinated with influenza, the flu shot, and those that weren't vaccinated with the flu shot. So what they did is a placebo was used so that the test group did not know if it was getting a flu shot or not. And what researchers found was that it's really unethical to avoid doing these types of studies in order to protect the population. So the report showed that after showing the test subjects, I'm sorry, after following the te test subjects for nine months, those being vaccinated with influenza suffered five and a half times more respiratory infections than those that did not get the flu shot. And the report goes on to state that the influenza vaccine encourages people to contract similar types of respiratory diseases or different strains of influenza. So the report was published in the November 2016 Clinical Infectious Diseases Journal, and many physicians are advising parents to not give their children the flu shot due to this double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial in which, in which the trivalent flu vaccine was used and the placebo was an injection of saline solution. So why is a saline placebo important? Well, other research trials use what are referred to as, quote, active placebos, which really means it's a syringe filled with substances or ingredients also used in the actual vaccine, but that detail is not listed in the report. So, you know, it skews the trial results in favor of the vaccines. See how that works? Yeah. All right. So let me read you a quote from Hong Kong, the study group. Yeah, their report was in the Clinical Infectious Diseases Journal. They say, with regards to the effectiveness of the flu vaccine uh, that, gives, it, that gives influenza, so the influenza vaccine, they say there is no statistical significant differences in the risk of confirmed seasonal influenza infection between recipients of the trivalent influenza inactivated vaccine or the placebo. No difference. No benefits. In other words, you don't get any protection from the flu shot, right? But you do get damaged by it. Here's the other part of their research. Another conclusion from the study was that the flu vaccine may very well damage the natural immune system response mechanism to prevent illness. Number one, influenza vaccines provide no benefit, they said. Number two, influenza vaccines cause a significant increase in the number of respiratory illnesses. And number three, influenza vaccines and possibly other vaccines harm the innate cell-mediated immune response, resulting in an increase in infectious disease incidence. What Dr. Anthony Norris said back in 1976. He was right. Bless his soul. All right, but there's a silver lining. There is. There is. Um, an article in Live Science reported that parents, patients, 
who are exposed to alternative treatments tend to skip the flu shot each year. Yeah, researchers at Pennsylvania State University published their review showing that children who are treated with alternative therapies have parents that do not seek the flu shot for their children. They also learned that more complementary physicians are not recommending flu shots and often other vaccines to their parent, patients. So the researchers obtained uh, much of their information from the National Health Survey that's conducted by the CDC, and they're trying to assess why people are not getting the flu vaccine. And what they are learning is that people are migrating to alternative therapies instead of getting the flu shot, and they're doing better. Their report states that the people that answered the surveys, about 8% of the children received herbal supplements, 7% chiropractic manipulation, 5% mind-body therapies like yoga, and 4% acupuncture. And they concluded that children who are exposed to these alternative therapies are more likely not to receive the flu shot than those who are not exposed to such treatments. So the study did not adequately compare the health of the vaccinated versus the non-vaccinated like the Hong Kong researchers. But what the CDC did conclude from their data was that medical doctors need to ask their patients if they engage in alternative therapies and to persuade them to receive the flu vaccine instead, instead. So if you haven't, you know, been to the doctor's office lately, there's many personal questions not related to your health visit that patients are asked to answer before they're examined. So uh, get ready for that, according to uh, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. That's what they're doing. Well, to me, it's obvious. You know, obviously more people are educating themselves on vaccine issues, and they're seeking safer, effective alternatives. However, the CDC's goal is to, is to get a 90% influenza vaccine saturation rate each year. Fortunately, they have not met their goals. So if you have the right alternative tools, you can get over the flu in just two days. Yeah. I personally use herbal immune support and respiratory support herbs if I get the flu. I don't use aspirin or Tylenol products to reduce the fever because that will guarantee you have the flu for about five to seven days. Most viruses will run their course, but it's important to support and not hinder the immune system. So lowering fever essentially shuts off the immune response. Fevers burn out infection. So the secret is to keep the fever wet. And you do that by drinking fluids, make sure there's no caffeine, uh, which can dehydrate your body. And if you get achy and, and stuff, you know, take several soothing baths per day and get plenty of rest. Rest is really important if you want your healing to succeed. Most people just, you know, they go to work and cough all over everybody. But if uh, you have uh, actually several options on fighting the flu at Apothecary Herbs, they have some prevention stuff. But if you want to stock up just in case, they do have the cold and flu packs. They have a pandemic kit. They have a lung and congestion kit. They have uh, the My Three Amigos and all-in-one prevention formulas. And they have a lot of other immune-boosting formulas you can buy just by themselves. And if you're not sure, you know, give them a call. The number is 866-229-3663. That's Apothecary Herbs, 866-229-3663. If you're outside the U.S., dial 704 704- 
885-0277. And of course, the website is thepowerherbs.com. You can drop them an email off the website, or if you don't do the website, it's support2, that's support number two at thepowerherbs.com. If you have questions, a lot of you do, and that's fine. Uh, they also have um, an herb section for children, you know, with a lot of doctor mom approved formulas there, so you can check it out. And uh, you can call and get prepared. That's what you do. And look for their money-saving coupons also on their website. And also their free product catalog is on the way. I can't wait to see it. We did put a sample of it up on the homepage so you can check it out. The cover's up there. And uh, this year we have um, new formulas, uh, new sizes. Uh, We even have an herb caddy. So if you want to organize all your nice little formulas, Pick up one of those. An herb caddy is really cool to have at thepowerherbs.com. Thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless. Yeah, forget the flu shot. Get prepared. Just, you know, power up that immune system. Take care of yourself. And, you know, don't burn the candle at both ends. That's, you know, the other thing you got to watch for. A lot of people overdo it. I know holiday season, it's, it's kind of hard to say no, right? Get used to saying no. Tell them I don't have time. I have to take care of myself. Thepowerherbs.com. Yep. If you're serious about herbs, you need apothecary herbs. I can tell by the clock we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, talking about the language of virologists, we got to get with it. we got to be educated. we got to know we'll be. Hey, Brett, is it time to go? I don't hear a bumper. Well, there it is. We'll be right back. Online at thepowerherbs.com. 
866-229-3663, where your health care options just became endless. trust anyone wearing a mask. Robbers, cattle rustlers, or doctors. I listen to Herb Talk Live. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Our prescription for good health, Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson. No insurance card required. The ancient Greeks thought thyme herb provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes the nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for thyme tincture and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. I know we can 
on Earth Talk Live. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson, and we're going to be talking about the language of virologists, you know, because um, sometimes it may be difficult to understand sometimes what scientists are reporting on, especially when it comes to vaccines and viruses. And generally, the public understands the basic differences between live and dead viruses, right? But what happens in the lab after that? So do the scientists do any make pathogens? Do they create opportunities for new discovery of pathogens um, just because they can for notoriety or advancement? Uh, Well, are scientists tinkering with pathogenic materials um, for their own aggrandizement? And, uh, you know, are they risking our health in the the process? Wow, good questions. Let's take a look and see what's going on in the lab, what virologists are doing and how this is going to affect us. First, we're going to talk about the principles of vaccines real quick. We were just talking about some of these new studies that came out in the first segment of the show. But according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the U.S., I'm sorry, the United Nations, there are reports on file in their depository that explain some of what scientists are doing with pathogenic materials. So there is this theory called the principle of vaccination in which science suggests that the immune system in animals and humans undergoes an immunological response to act in such a way against the pathogen in the vaccines that it would help prevent disease. Well, really, this is not based on any clinical proof, according to former chief virologist of the FDA, Dr. Anthony Morris. And Dr. Morris, over a 10-year period while he worked at the FDA, went over the clinical trial evidence and reported it didn't support what the scientific community was saying about the benefits of vaccines, especially about the influenza vaccine. And we're at this time now of the year where they push the flu shots, especially if you work in the medical area or healthcare areas. So the way vaccinations are supposed to work is in theory or hypothesis, which has really not been adequately proven by science, it's to prevent or reduce a pathogenic infection in clinical trials. That's what they're telling us that vaccines uh, give you. But Dr. Morris did, did report that what he sees in all these clinical research trials was that the vaccines damaged the immune system. Now, we just heard that. Let me go back. We just heard that from the Hong Kong study, correct? Yep, the Hong Kong study in which, uh, oh no, the German study, pardon me, in which um, the influenza vaccines harm the innate cell-mediated immune response. No, that was the Hong Kong study, pardon me, again. So, So Morris was right. He was so right about that. And so he says it damages the immune system, and it can damage, he says, the central nervous system. And that's why you get a lot of people with Guillain-Barre syndrome and autism, things like that. So it would appear that folks in charge of vaccines have produced some really highly sophisticated propaganda to help fool even the most brilliant in medical communities, you know. All right, so is there a difference between a live or a dead virus? Well, science states the basics of creating a vaccine is to take a live virus, kill it, and inject it into the lab animal. This is called an inactivated vaccine. And science 
also takes live viruses that are considered to not cause serious disease and also infect lab animals with it. That is known as a live vaccine. And science does not leave matters there, though. They take live viruses with desirable properties, and then they clone them. And this is called a cloned live vaccine. Scientists also genetically engineer vaccines when they take a part of the genetic material from a live virus and insert it into a different virus and produce a recombatant vaccine. So the four strains of influenza vaccines that we see from 2015 to this year, uh, you're going to see a lot of recombatant vaccine in the flu area. However, people are really not told they're getting a genetically modified flu shot. You know, I mean, how many people are, are listening to their doctor and they're getting a flu shot and they may go to the store and, and buy, you know, organic produce and beef, don't like genetically modified, but they just got a genetically modified flu shot, right? So when you're considering vaccines, there are So the inactivated uh, viruses are made from you know, things, you know, viruses that they grow on eggs, and uh, then they treat them uh, with inactivated agents, usually beta-prophylactone. Uh, formalin also is one of the things they treat it with, and it's really a, a formaldehyde substance. And they use that, they say, to preserve the biological specimen. So the beta-propylactone is a compound from the lactone family or ester family, and it's been known to cause cancer in lab animals. An adjuvant is also added to make the inactivated virus immunogenic, in other words, to force an antibody response from your immune system. And we're told that the inactivated virus cannot replicate or spread. And live virus vaccines are supposedly heat-sensitive and transporting and storage, storage of them is more expensive. And uh, also, you know, they pass their expiration date. They're no, no good at all. All right, let's look at recombatants. I mean, they're more dangerous is what I mean by that. If expiration is gone, they're more dangerous than ever. Well, let's look at the recombatant vaccines. Um, they're really GM vaccines. They use protein antigens from bacterias. And some pathogenic organisms have been purified, they say, by science. So a pure protein-based bacterial organism in your vaccines produced, um, well, they produce an abnormal response from an immune system in humans. The design is based on a conceptual theory of how the human immune system functions, because uh, virologists will tell you, if they're honest, we still don't know exactly how the immune system works. We're guessing. So science does not know how the immune system functions in its entirety, and therefore they are guessing. And science thinks that the immune system is going to react to the recombatant vaccine by targeting protein antigens called epitopes. That's what they think. They're hoping. Now, you've got to remember, a recombatant vaccine is man-made. 
It's a mutation. It's a genetically modified agent. It trans, it's transforming one species of a pathogen into another, and it is sometimes called a protein biochemistry agent because uh, they take and make one species, a host from one species in an organism, and they turn it into another species that is not naturally found and has fragmented genes. God, who thinks of this stuff, right? All right. So what science creates is a freak pathogenic protein, and it adds adjuvants to hyperstimulate your immune system response to it. Scientists are trying to use these freak proteins to target specific immune system responses. In other words, to override an, the natural ability of the immune system to react and thereby disable its normal function. So you talk about sabotaging your immune system, your personal God-given inborn, inborn defenses, sabotaged. That's what this is, sabotaged with a smile, saying it'll help you instead of that it will hurt you. So scientists are trying to use these and um, override the immune system's natural ability. This could be why there are numerous cases of autoimmune disease and all those diseases we mentioned in the first part of the show. However, science also states that recombatant vaccines are supposed to protect you against um, toxins that are released by pathogens rather than protect you against the infection or the virus or bacteria itself. Uh-huh. So the vaccines don't protect you from the flu, influenza, virus, but from the byproducts it produces, apparently. Uh, so according to BioVentures of Global Health, the following vaccines are recombatant vaccines on the market in use, the cholera vaccine, the diphtheria vaccine, the hepatitis B vaccine, and the tetanus vaccine. And according to vaccines.gov, the recombatant vaccines in development are for HIV, rabies, and measles. All right, so we're going to have a new generation of vaccines here shortly. Uh, the new generation uh, are the ones that science is tinkering with right now by adding genetically modified proteins and adjuvants. Not all virologists are in agreement with this, that by overstimulating the immune system and by using genetically modified pathogens and freak bacteria proteins is not a good idea. And there's concern that these vaccines will encourage more autoimmune dysfunction, neurological dysfunction, and disease and internal medicine diseases, as well as even death. So here is a quote. Uh, let's see. It's from the review, Vaccination and Autoimmune Disease. Uh, it says, the association between infection and autoimmune disease has, however, stimulated a debate as to whether such diseases might also be triggered by vaccines. A debate, huh? All right, Dr. Thomas Cowan, Weston A. Price Foundation, says a study called the JB and SM McCanley study showed that diseases such as tuberculosis, diphtheria, smallpox, and other childhood illnesses were declining by as much as 90% prior to the introduction of vaccines. Yeah. So they're, you know, the, the, the human immune system was pretty robust, and it was eliminating those, those deadly pathogens, but now we got a whole slew of freak protein 
GM mutant stuff to worry about. Okay, so the delivery of a vaccine is possible by drinking water. Some people don't realize that, but we're told that it's not as strong as through eye drops, aerosols, or injections. Hmm. All right, so Dr. Thomas Cowan, I like this guy, he explained that vaccines will change the way the immune system works. He states, with repeated vaccinations, the immune system loses its ability to properly work, and statistically, we have poor health, poorer health, and uh, the longer that we live. So Dr. Cowan explains that the immune system has two actions. One is called the cell-mediated action, which, of course, the Hong Kong study mentioned. And um, so one is called the cell-mediated action, and the other is called the humoral action. So he says the cell-mediated action detects viruses and other pathogens. Then it manufactures, the, it gets the white blood cells going to um, make an antibody to eradicate the infection and clear away any debris or byproducts by the uh, pathogen. Um, and um, so by the time all this is going on, uh, then you start to feel those sick, sick symptoms, you know, chills, fever, cough, mucus. That's when the immune system has already started to engage an antibody. Now, the hormoral action of your immune system, the hormoral action is responsibly says for coding the antibody and remembering it for future reference. Uh, so it also helps make an association similar to other pathogens uh, so that your adaptive immune system cells can utilize it to make new antibodies for similar strains. So your immune system is very sophisticated. So your um, vaccines want to disable all this, right? So vaccines suppress, delete, exhaust uh, the cell-mediated action, disable it, and its ability to fight an infection. And for this reason, Dr. Cohen says people become ill with epidemic conditions like allergies, eczema, asthma, diabetes, uh, food allergies like peanuts, autoimmune diseases, Crohn's disease, MS, thyroid diseases, and a whole slew of others. So, um, and here's the thing that's really important. The uh, rotavirus and the pneumococcal vaccines have an added adjuvant of peanut oil, but it's not listed on the ingredient list. And how many people have allergies to peanuts now? EpiPens are going in everybody's backpack. So, and get this now, some people have allergies to eggs, and they sometimes culture these viruses, these pathogens, on eggs. And now the new thing is, let's grow pathogens on tobacco leaves. Okay, now here's a thought. So you're out, someone's smoking a cigarette. What you go, and you had a vaccine that was grown on tobacco leaves. Are you going to have a, an anaphylactic shock response to smelling secondhand smoke? I'm just asking the question. So either science is pretty ignorant about the immune system actually functions, or it's very very uh, aware of how it's function and its aim is to destroy it and cause endless an endless supply of sick people. Let's just think about this a minute. Let it sink in. What do you think? 
they're e- either ignorant as can be and, and putting everybody at risk, uh, and, and we're all the biggest skinny pigs ever, or it's deliberate. Well, Dr. Morris says it's deliberate, or he said it was deliberate, because, you know, he blew the whistle and got fired. Uh, if only 5 to 20% of adverse drug reactions and hospital errors are reported, well, then it's not outside our common sense to believe that the harm caused by vaccines is underreported, purposely hidden, and viciously defended. Yeah. All right. So you want to power up an immune system. Apparently, you know, if you've had vaccines, your immune system needs a little help, needs some super nutrition. And God said herbs are here for the service of man, so let's tap into those that feed the immune system support. Astragalus root, echinacea, garlic. I mean, we got these herbs. Let's use them, right? So um, go to thepowerherbs.com. They are the experts in immune boosting and organ cleansing. If you want to detox from uh, pathogens like vaccines, from vaccines, and from pharmaceutical residues, you can do that. You have that power right now. Learn how you can. And if you got the right tools, it's not that hard. Thepowerherbs.com, not that expensive either, really. A detox program probably costs you less money than having a physical at your doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Go to thepowerherbs.com, check it out. If you do not have access to the web, call for a free product catalog, 866-229-3663. 866-229-3663. ThePowerHerbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless. Hey, um, new catalogs coming. Uh, we do have a catalog in stock uh, that we can send, but uh, the updated pricing is on the website. New catalog's not here yet, but I'm excited. It's going to be here probably in maybe seven, ten days. Um, it's bright. It's colorful. It's informative. Uh, we've got. Um, New sizes in the product formulas. We got a few new things. Um, I think you'll like it. Um, we're excited. Um, yes, it will be up on the website uh, as a download probably um, within two weeks. We're working on that as well. So, um, and our apologies on one product seems to be not working right in the shopping cart. It's the bowel cleanser. So um, bear with us as we get our IT to fix that. We're not really sure what's up with that. So thepowerherbs.com, check it out. Sign up for the newsletters. They're free. Go to the newsletters tab and sign up for the health quest, which goes out on Friday. So if you want that to go to you tomorrow, sign up. It's free. You go to thepowerherbs.com and sign up. It's delivered by email. And, of course, the, the American Survival Newsletter goes out on Tuesdays. So you can sign up for that as well, also free. Well, I only have a few minutes, so we'll have to do our annual checkup topic next time, but we can touch on some thyroid health in the next few minutes that we have left. Um, a lot of thyroid problems, and of course, as we know from the Hong Kong um, and uh, the New Zealand and the German study, they are suggesting that vaccines are causing a lot of these internal medicine disorders, and I tend to agree. Um, so a lot of people have thyroid issues, and um, I like to use a combination of herbs for that. You know, it seems to balance thyroid, soothe the gland, um, and it, it feeds it its natural food. And one of the natural foods that the thyroid has to have is iodine, but it has to be natural iodine. Synthetic iodine doesn't work so well. So if you can get some real straight-up iodine, and you're going to find iodine in food sources like seaweed, sun-dried 
Celtic salt, and of course, black walnut. Black walnut's going to be your highest concentration, and a lot of people with thyroid disorders out there definitely need that. So without natural iodine, you actually rob your thyroid of being able to synthesize the hormones it, it, it uses, um, and this lowers your thyroid activity, and your energy production also is sacrificed because um, um, this is known as hypothyroidism. So the result of low iodine creates fatigue, weight gain, and enlargement of the thyroid gland, also called a goiter. So an iodine deficiency test may help you figure out if that's the, what you have, um, but an iodine deficiency may also contribute to um, fibrocystic breast conditions. Um, and a lot of people go to these iodine supplements um, to, and sometimes they can reverse those conditions, but you know, choose, be, choose wisely on the supplements because um, it is difficult to overdose on natural iodine. However, some have developed iodine goiter in large thyroid glands when they take synthetic iodine supplements. This is real important. You want a whole food iodine if you're going to use a supplement. Do not use synthetic. Synthetic doesn't have the minerals and the uptake alkaloids, so the body can use the iodine appropriately. So um, a lot of guessing goes into those type of drugs, and that's what it is. It's a drug. So when you use a whole flute like black walnut, the chemistry is perfect. Guess who created it? God did. See there? Of course, you can find straight-up whole food black walnut liquid at thepowerherbs.com. Now, I like to use uh, mullein with that to soothe the thyroid gland and Siberian ginseng for a little bit of stamina. So those three together seem to do the trick. Damn, in just a few days. Just a few days. So you got some biological benefits from God's good herbs because he told us herbs are here for the service of man and the healing of the nation, and God can't lie. Yeah. So, um, you know, seek the truth because it's going to set you free. may mean that you're not sinless, but it means you're not blameless. So that's what it is. Be blameless out there and do all you can to protect that temple of the Holy Spirit and look after it and uh, perk up that thyroid and uh, you'll do well. Um, also, be aware some antibiotics sabotage your thyroid. That's right. Um, the broad-spectrum antibiotics, uh, they have lots of names, neomycin, streptomycin. Um, those, uh, they do a lot of uh, damage to the thyroid gland. They initially suppress the natural immune system response as well, but um, they do strip the body of vital nutrition that, that is helpful for the thyroid. Uh, so you want to, you know, your vitamin K, iron, natural bees, uh, potassium, that kind of thing. So long-term use of antibiotics cause also blood pressure and heart problems, bone problems, muscular weakness, nervous system problems. So watch the long-term, especially if you've got things like sinusitis, people on those drugs for a long time get, a, get way out of balance. They start a whole thing, a cascade of problems. So do your homework. Uh, do not use long-term antibiotics if you can absolutely help it. And uh, if you're looking for a sinus uh, formula, look for the Echinacea Deluxe at thepowerherbs.com. It will be the bomb, and you can just skip it. I'm out of time. The information presented is not intended to diagnose treatment. Please seek medical advice. 
Dare from a licensed medical physician. Any product or therapy. I'm your host, Wendy Wilson. Until next time, be well.
folks, and welcome once again to another edition of the Contenders for the Faith radio broadcast. I am Pastor Anthony Grissy, back on the air after two weeks of being off. We've been up in Oregon, and uh, we had a wonderful time up there at the Old Paths Historic Baptist Church in Tualatin, Oregon. So if you folks were up there in the Oregon area, you listeners out there, you missed a wonderful meeting. We had a blast. I believe God worked in the church. And uh, man, Jason, I got to say, I, I got to see some really cool stuff. And the thing that really thrilled my heart, outside of the fact that God worked, I believe he did do a great work in that church up there. But what really thrilled my heart, I got to see Mount St. Helens. And um, that's just amazing, guys. That is a tribute to the mighty power of God. Um, and the Bible even talks about the mountains being melted with fervent heat in light of the power of God. And I got to see an example of that. And, and what's neat about Mount St. Helens, Jason, was the fact that this happened only, what, 30-something years ago. Uh, I think it was 1980 when it blew. And uh, when I see something like that, that gives me hope that we, we worship someone that's far more powerful than uh, these people that are trying to run for public office. And um, that's the God I serve. That's the God I love. That's the God I worship. And um, in spite of what will happen tomorrow, I know my God. My God has more power than they do. And there will be a judgment for them as well, as well as the rest of the world. So, folks, take hope. But, man, I got to see some neat things up there, and we got to see God work. We, we hate missing the radio show. And um, from what I hear, Jason, you did a fantastic job, as always. And um, But here we are, back on the air. Glory to God. Uh, you're listening to a show that's dedicated to controversy and conspiracy directly related to Christianity. And, um, and we do all these things from a biblical perspective. We believe that if it's not in the book, then um, then it's highly suspect, guys. That book has the answers, and we're talking about the old King James Bible. That book has all the answers for life's problems. From politics to pop culture, man, that book has all the answers. And we try to follow that book in every aspect. And not only do we believe it has all the answers, but we believe it is as relevant, and this may be a little bit redundant, but it is as relevant for the 21st century, every part of that book, as it was back when they were, those 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 words were written, and I and I know that Christians can't seem to grasp that, Jason. You know, Romans thirteen doesn't apply to Americans, and Romans fourteen doesn't apply to holidays, and Romans such and and and, and First Timothy two that doesn't apply for twenty uh, first century Christians in America. That doesn't apply either, and that doesn't apply. And I, that's hog fat, man. That book is relative. It's relevant. It, it, it's it's if we followed it, it will always be right. And that's what we're trying to do on this show is try to um, convince the listeners that there is something worth trusting in. And it's not Hillary, and most certainly isn't Trump, and it's not the Constitution of the United States. It's the book. It's the Bible. It always has been. Jason, uh, as always, good to have you on the air. And man, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. <clears throat> Pastor Jason. Good to have you on the air, man. <laughs> it is great to be on the air tonight, of course. As always, uh, miss you the last two weeks being on the show. I, I did take the opportunity, though, Pastor, to make fun of you in various and sundry ways. And I always give out your personal contact info. Do you yeah. ever get a call, people giving you a hard time about not being on the broadcast? Uh, no, I get 
um, well, I get Skype um, posts and texts every oh, once good. in a while. But um, so there. Yeah. As, as long as somebody's <laughs> giving you a hard time, <laughs> anyway. That's right. Hey, hey, folks, um, there are a couple of different ways you can interact with this broadcast and other broadcasts on the American Voice Radio Network. Go to uh, theamericanvoice.com. On the left-hand side, you'll see a button there that says chat. Give yourself a super not-so-secret identity and jump into there into that chat room. No, actually, I don't even care if you we, – we don't know who you are. Tree Farmer's in there. I don't know what Tree Farmer's name is, but Tree Farmer participates quite a bit. Uh, I'm in there. Nunya, Frank's in there, and Anthony Garissi, that's the other guy. He's on there as well. Folks, the uh, chat room is an excellent opportunity to interact with the host during the show. You know, in a live manner, it's pretty exciting, actually. And uh, also, there's some other things on the AmericanVoice.com website that I want to mention while we are doing the introduction here. And and that would be uh, Frank's meme page.